Dr. Lee Beecher, a retired psychiatrist and a close friend and colleague. Thanks a lot for making it today, Lee. I appreciate it. to be here. So a little background, Anya. You're a retired psychiatrist. Um, where did you train? I trained uh, in my psychiatric training at the University of Chicago. I went to the University of Minnesota Medical School. And uh, I came from small town New Orleans, Minnesota, and up through the public school system. Awesome. So just like me, a public school product, a Gopher alum, and um, University of Chicago, excellent, very preeminent institution. Nowadays, one of the actually probably the single remaining large prestigious university that is firmly pro-free scientific inquiry and speech. Mm -hmm. And they've fiercely defended that when you were, when you yes. were there. Yes, that's true. And then to this day, I think they're the last bastion um, that the Yales and Harvards and Princetons of the world have all given it up. And it's just UFC fighting the good fight. Um, so you graduated from Universities of uh, Minnesota Medical School, went to U of C in training. Well, when did I actually you? went to Carleton College. Oh, you went first. to Carleton College first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, when did you leave training? Well, I finished medical school in, in 65 and, and uh, completed my psychiatric residency in 69. And then I went into the service in Hawaii uh, during the Vietnam near the end okay. of that. Yeah. And um, how long were you in the service? For? I was in the service three years at okay. Pearl Harbor and saw people coming and going uh, fr from that, but most of my work was with the dependent women that were taking care of business at home okay. while the sailors were out. And were you serving in specialty or were you in a GMO I was, billet? I was in a specialty service uh, at the mental health center. Okay. Wow. Well, that must have been fascinating. It was. So you were... Plus, I worked uh, part-time for the state of Hawaii and saw the state system, worked in the outpatient mental health centers and stuff. That's great. So you did work under a state system in Hawaii. Oh, yes. Hawaii. Back then, was it? I mean, it, now quite far left. Back y then, yes, was it still? Yes, I think there's, there's always been that tendency towards state services and, and a lot of uh, public uh, servants and uh, civil servants. That's true in the Navy, too. Yeah. I remember the little Japanese ladies uh, taking care of our paperwork all the time and shuffling us from one building to the next. But there is that kind of mentality in Hawaii. But there's a certain kind of pride in the population, which I, I really like, uh, a, a pride in work, a pride in getting things done, which I saw, too. And have you been back relatively I recently? I saw, yes. Uh, my wife and I did have a chance to go back for a tour, but I hadn't been back since. This was about two years ago. And of course, the island is completely changed yeah. now. Yeah. But I think the politics are, are have always been sort of left. But now it's uh, clearly uh, with the uh, uh, with the senator from Hawaii and so on. We right. See, yeah. Although Hawaii did produce uh, yes. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard, and she is she's amazing. She I, is amazing. She's everyone uh, right of center. I think they're <laughs> they're only Democrats that they might appreciate because I think. She's honest, right? When she sees something she doesn't like, she's going to call it out. Corruption is corruption, you know, and you shouldn't be happy about corruption on your own team and certainly not on the other team, as it were. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why she's so appreciated. It's not that on a policy basis I agree with her, although there probably are some things that we do, would agree on in terms of foreign policy. But just that willingness to say, you know, I'm going to try to do my best to be honest and do the best for my constituents and not play ball with my team. She's also had a military background, too. She is. Yeah. 
she still might be in the guard. I believe so. So, yeah, kind of impressive. So, um, returned, you know, back here after that, and then... Right, after, after service, Vietnam. I joined the, then the Minneapolis Clinic of Psychiatry and Neurology, which was a big, uh, dominant uh, psychiatric group at the time. I thought about going into academic medicine, went over to the university, got, got an offer to join the faculty as a junior member, uh, but decided that I, in those days, there was a huge difference in what I'd get paid if I went to the, to the large uh, psychiatric clinic. And also, uh, my mentor in medical school recruited me there, too. So, so it's my understanding or recollection is that uh, academic departments were better run back then. There was, the, there was always been the pay gap um, between academics and private practice, but mm -hmm. that otherwise, the things that attracted people to academia, protected time for research, yes. education... Um, seeing really interesting cases yeah, the, on a referral basis. The caveats and the and the appraisal I received from the then chairman at the University of Minnesota was that he didn't know if I really had any particular uh, line of inquiry that would be relevant to uh, research. Mm -hmm. What research was in psychiatry has always been, you know, an interest of mine. And, and where are we going? And maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But at the time, they uh, they they really didn't know what to do with me. They thought maybe I could become a spokesperson for them or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, they, they talk about this three-legged stool in academia that uh, you can be a clinician, a researcher, or a teacher, and ideally you do some of each one of the three exactly. of those, but everyone ends up with a bias one way or the other. Yes. There are kind of, you know, academic institutions that are primarily clinical practice, so Mayo, Cleveland would fall into right, that, right. where you're 80% clinical, mm -hmm. um, and then you have some component of nominally of research. Well, I know that you trained at Mayo. You've told me that when yeah. we've talked before. And I have a lot of respect for the Mayo Clinic, and my family members have gone there, and uh, I'm very intrigued by that uh, model and their excellence. Uh, and I wonder now, if I had gone to medical school, uh, if I would have chosen that track rather than maybe some other. Yeah, I mean, I think... The issues with medical school at Mayo are that no one wants to be treated by a Mayo med student. So I still think the U of M <laughs> <laughs> produces better graduates. Okay. Um, you know, the U of M has the, I mean, I graduated in 2007. I was there from three to seven. The U of M has the advantage of being probably the single only setup where it's the only game in town for three level one trauma centers, two county hospitals, an academic institution, 87 miles from Mayo, and then a number of community hospitals. Right. If you have a two and a half million person metro area, you typically don't have ownership of all of it with one medical school. So the advantage of a student then is that you're not overloaded. You might have teams where you're the student. So if you want to be aggressive, so I did my surgery and OB rotations at North. I wanted to scrub for everything. I wanted to ride the helicopter. I wanted to help. I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. Even though I wasn't going to be OB, but I was curious about mm -hmm. it, and I wanted to get the most out of that I could. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, I've delivered my four kids in the <laughs> with my OB standing over oh. my shoulder, and that's the extent oh, of my okay. OB. Right? Things have gone bad when dermatologists are delivering babies. <laughs> 
So, but the advantage was you could go to those institutions and you could do that. And, and that really is what made the U special. At Mayo, you were like the 10th guy on the team and none of the, the patients, you know, like don't. Yeah, I've noticed that even the, the senior residents are sort of like tag-alongs because yeah. I go in, my, my daughter is, has a, had a number of visits at the Mayo and, and uh, wonderful, wonderful doctors, but the, 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 the residents are sort of set aside. So when I was uh, fourth year, we do you know med one, med two, so ICU, sort of subintern and ICU. I would adjust the vents, right? I know what the gases are. I know what their um, BMP looks like. I can adjust, and obviously I'd run it past my senior resident or the fellow. But I would go up to the vent and push the setting. So you know, an intern, you know, did a medical internship year at Mayo, and so you rotate through medical ICU, oncology ICU. Cardiac ICU, <laughs> and I got yelled at so badly. Like, what are you doing touching that? Like, even the senior residents aren't supposed to touch the vent. I was like, well, am I wrong? Yeah, but you just can't do. You're right, but you just can't do it. And I was like, okay, it's Mayo. I get it. So yeah, from a training standpoint, the U of M was much better at producing world class clinicians who could operate, think, do, cut, do procedures tap joints, put in lines. Um, you know, Mayo, you'd be exposed to the super rare stuff, which is great when you're a fellow. But if you're trying to build a foundation of knowledge, it's not the best way to train people, in my opinion. But, you know, even in the, since 2007, medical education has changed so much that they keep reducing the difficult clinical workload, right? Uh, understand all this pharmaco pharmacology keeps getting bigger, right? Every new week there is something, something IMAB, which is some monoclonal antibody, but there's some amazing thing. Mm -hmm. um, the classes of drugs are broader, the complication of everything. Medicine is larger, and yet the amount of time you spend doing the hard, hardcore things that make you from a standard citizen into a functional physician mm -hmm. have shrunk. I would say the parallel in psychiatry for me was that I chose to take a Rock'em Sock'em rotating internship at Hennepin County General after I got out of the U. And uh, I sort of had an interest in psychiatry and certainly was encouraged, uh, as I mentioned, uh, by, by people at the U to do it. Uh, but being exposed to that uh, rotating internship was really an experience. And from my perspective, the idea of learning about what the realm of knowledge is, what the patients are like, what the, what the interactions are like between the now called providers or physicians and, and the uh, patients is like, was just absolutely incredibly important. And uh, I was sort of committed to the idea of becoming a philosopher, clinician, doctor kind of person. And uh, so having a lot of exposure to actual clinical work Yes, emergency room, surgery, that stuff, mm -hmm. holding the retractor, passing out one time because of my <laughs> low blood pressure. Those are all important <laughs> experiences to have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you, look, you're not a doctor until you've delivered a baby, right? Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, Jill Biden, not with the standing. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and so that's gone away. Uh, so, you know, I have friends that were the end of the era of, you know, radiology doing all the rotating internships right. and so uh, psychiatry now is that still mandatory oh no i mean that 
rather rapidly. I've been very active with the American Psychiatric uh, too politically over the years. And uh, yes, the, the rotating internship is, is a thing of the past. I, and now they in, have actually said they've shortened the, uh, the residencies uh, to, to really include the, the, the internship, they call it, but it's, it's more of a, I don't know what you'd call it. I mean, that's not an area of my uh, knowledge, sure. but I, I know it's different. It's different. Um, so you, you trained that, you went into specialty. What was pri or private practice, large group, what was that like? What was your day? Monday morning, you wake up, you go into work. What was it like when you entered practice? Well, I, I was very fortunate to have some excellent uh, mentors and teachers at the Minneapolis Clinic, uh, including Don Mayberg and Don Daggett, now deceased, uh, who really it's, it viewed the, the doctor-patient relationship as a central, central part of their work. And, and Metropolitan Medical Center, wh which I was fortunate enough to be able to be associated with from the, from the outset of my uh, Minneapolis clinic experience, was a fantastic place. A and it was full of John Kennedy kind of idealism and the idea that mental health was going to fix everything. We, maybe we can talk about what goes around comes around <laughs> in terms of some of this woke stuff that's going yeah. on now in, in mental health. But uh, so I had, going to work was, was really, I had a team at the hospital. In fact, we, we set up what I consider to be sort of an optimal mental health system within a system. That is, I, the, uh, the, the team consisted of a nurse and a physician. You'd have the same nurse who would help you see all of your patients, inpatient, outpatient, emergency room, everything. So. It, it was like you'd join a team if you got hooked up with, and the, each physician had his own or her own team. And in those days, it was a his own team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for, we could back up maybe one step for the benefit of people listening that don't know this, because people still think that dermatology or glorified estheticians. What is the difference between psychiatry, psychology, and what sure. would you do in practice in 1974? Well, in, in 1974, I would have perhaps done a physical examination on the patients that were admitted to the inpatient unit. I would do ECT myself. Okay. Along it's with electroconvulsive with, yes, therapy. A therapy, a shock treatment, if you mm -hmm. will, which as, again, now we're seeing that this is a restorative for suicidal de depression mm -hmm. and things like that. I would do things like that. I prescribed all the medications, but we would handle the, the whole psychosocial uh, needs of the patient as a team. And, and I was the director along with my, my team leader nurse uh, to, to, do, to doing that. The nurses were all established within a very tight and well-organized system, but they supported the doctors. The patients also had a lot to say about what would happen, and we'd have a lot of group therapy and a lot of things like that, too. So you would catch them inbound uh, with acute psychotic breaks or hospitalizations, Usually. Su suicidal attempts, right? and then you would follow them That's outpatient. That's right, and you'd follow them outpatient. It was, you could either do it through the outpatient department at the MMC hospital uh, outpatient, or you could do this at the um, Golden Valley Clinic, where okay. the Minneapolis Clinic uh, was. And what fraction of the patients oh, that I didn't finish psychology. That's right, psychology. Yes, <laughs> psychology is is a is a is a very important part of psycho psychiatry. And actually, what's happened is that 
psychiatry has, has split itself off into different subgroups, including psychopharmacology, okay. prescribing, which is what most of the psychiatrists are doing now in the managed care systems, okay. outpatient. They have inpatient psychiatrists that do some of the same things that I was doing, but they don't follow the patients with a team the same way we did. I'm sorry I'm still beating the drum for that, but the, the psychologists are, they get uh, PhD level training and they have uh, become sort of the talking arm of mental health now. Uh, social work is also a big uh, mm -hmm. part of that. Many of those folks are now licensed and, and uh, are on the front line of counseling services and things like that. So it's definitely broadened to non-physician mental health practitioners. Okay. But that team aspect, it would seem that you would want someone doing the talking, someone doing the drug management, quarterbacking, someone getting the social services in place. Yep. You need a team. Right. And a lot of those are skills that well, sure and, and but have. it's one thing to say that you're going to have a team and name all the different components sure. of the team, and another thing to actually to deliver the goods with the patient to get the patient involved in appraising, uh, buying and and rejecting, but but following through with the motivational aspects of his own treatment plan. Hmm. And and what was the who paid the bill when you started? Well, that was that that's changed a lot too because Blue Cross played the bill paid the bill. And there really was very, very little questions. And as I alluded to, there was sort of an idealism about mental health. So if you, once you got into the system, it was sort of up to the, to the psychiatrists and the administrators to decide what you were going to do, and Blue Cross would pay the bill. Now, in 1991, I became the first medical director for Preferred One okay. in, in psychiatry. And so I, I did that because I wanted to learn about what the insides of managed care was all about. I always aspired to be the head honcho at Blue Cross Blue Shield, but I didn't want to drive all the way out to Egan. <laughs> so, but the, the, the important part of that is that the insurance, uh, the employers that uh, commandeer most of the private insurance, said, "Wait a minute, we can't have all. We can't be sending people out to Wyoming for certain kinds of horseback therapy or something. <laughs> and how are we going to quantify and consolidate and understand?" what's reimbursable and what isn't? Very well, good question. There seems like a grain of truth there, right? Because sometimes there's we a think grain it, of truth. But yeah, you, right, we shouldn't be paying equine therapy maybe uh, in some cases, right? There's certain things that, that are done that uh, either lack a um, research or scientific basis or a rational basis and are simply money-making things. So you can see, again, this kernel of truth and reality oh, that sure. these systems are yeah. engineered to solve a legitimate problem, and then unfortunately they just fall off the rail, right? And they end up well, I, I think what, uh, what, what, what happened is that, uh, so I decided to leave the Minneapolis clinic about a year and a half after I got there because I knew I was never going to get a tea time, and <laughs> there were many other psychiatrists that were senior to me, and I was a little restless, I suppose. But I started my own private practice uh, in, uh, in, in, 90 th in 93, or 93 and a half, and uh, went through the whole process of, of organizing an office. But I was able to continue at the Metropolitan Medical Center and have on the independent medical staff. Mm -hmm. And I became chief of psychiatry and so on and so on, and that wedded that with my APA experience. And then 
What yeah. happened to indigent patients, patients without insurance? Well, they would get they would be taken care of um, Medicare and Medicaid, of course, in 1965. So this was um, uh, this was available, and we, we you know medical assistance has always been available in Minnesota. So I don't know how you, where you want to go with this. Well, I was just curious if it covered more of the costs or if it was. Because right now, the you know the major criticism is that you can't medical assistance exists. But I don't it really, know the answer to that, but it really, really doesn't. I, that's something I'd be interested in knowing about. Yeah, I, I mean the, the reimbursement levels are uh, unsustainable. Right, I know that's true for outpatients because yeah. I had my own practice, and I had to decide to go to a cash practice rather quickly. Right, I could see that either I was going to do patient advocacy and the kind of work that I wanted to do with each patient mm -hmm. and put him and her in charge of the treatment with me, or I was gonna have to just, you know, basically do what the insurance company told me, and that I saw as just being insufficient to, to, to meeting the needs of the patients that I saw. And it seems nowadays that quite a few, I mean, psychiatry might be the furthest down the road in having cash practices, and not I think always that's right. taking uh, insurance. Uh, that's right, and uh, actually in 2013 and 2014, there were two seminars that I participated in with the Association of, uh, American Association of Physicians and Surgeons at, at the University of Minnesota about cash practice. And it is a lot of mental health professionals that are doing outpatient, mm -hmm. and this includes non mostly non-psychiatrists, the psychologists, the social workers, mm -hmm. the other counselors. are, And now we have the addiction counselors, mm -hmm. and I also am addiction certified. so I specialized in treating people who had serious addictions and that sort of thing too. But these, these uh, insurance companies have, have never really differentiated between people who are trained to do it and those who are submitting a bill to do it. And mm -hmm. that's, that's what we've got now is that everybody's trying to get paid through the insurance company. That's the game now. The reason I'm dwelling on the financial side of this is to steel man the argument from the left. It's that we have a shortage of psychiatry beds. No one disputes that. Yep. There's not enough acute care facilities. Right. There's poor access to post-hospitalization follow-up. That is true. So there's a high degree of kind of bounce back. You, know, you fall off the wagon. You're not getting followed, you come back and in. And part of the reason for the bounce back is, and I've already told you, at least my belief, you don't have the same providers. You don't have the same doctor. You're constantly switching mm. systems. It's like going on a tour of Europe and Asia and going to different hotels. Yeah. You have different staff that you're working with each time. One other difference that I think occurred during your practice life was the elimination of the state hospital system. Absolutely. And what role did they play then? Are they needed again now? Because some people have talked okay. about bringing that back. Well, I, I learned most about that because I was on Governor Rudy Perpich's Mental Health Commission in 1985, and I was president-elect of the Psychiatric Society, and we tried to figure out how we were going to, what, would the, what was going to be the aftermath of closing the state hospitals, because that had already been decided, as I mentioned, because of, well, in, in, in the early 60s, actually, we were beginning to talk about deinstitutionalization. Mm -hmm. And and there is a lot of, and I've been involved in, in years past with the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill and with the patient advocacy. So there's been a tremendous effort to deinstitutionalize and destigmatize sure. mental health treatment and bring it back to the community 
rather than having people sent off to, you know, St. Peter or mm -hmm. someplace and be sort of in a sort of a psychiatric prison. Paradoxically, of course, now we've got the sex offenders up at Moose Lake, sure. and we have all committed people in our state hospitals here in Minnesota. So it, that's sort of turned around. Again, we're back to institutionalizing certain well, people. Because there's certain people that are so ill that no matter how much follow-up and what kind of team you wrap around them, they simply can't they have a very hard time, right? There's, they're, yeah, they're yeah brittle, that's right. Well, they, brittle they enough. They require they require more than just medication mm -hmm. or having somebody to talk to or a social worker or getting funding for food and mm -hmm. housing. Even though all those things are absolutely essential for community care, as we can see with the homeless and with this tremendous problem that we're seeing with uh, uh, here and even in Minneapolis, of course. So, what do you do? Uh, you, sometimes you need to have a, a community that you have that you it's a little like I'm anticipating my next step is going into a senior community <laughs> which is a rather frightening <laughs> prospect for me but Hopefully the idea that, well, I know but uh, the idea that that somehow uh, you want to live in the community but what right. is the community the community right. has to be responsive to you right these old state hospitals in many cases were very responsive they had farms they had work programs they had uh, they had, you know, uh, Booker T. Washington-like uh, vocational training, but it was internal. And, and you'd, yes, you were depersonalized. Yes, there were many problems with it. But these people did have a place where they were safe, mm -hmm. where the families could visit them, things like that. What a lot is talked about uh, nowadays with the role of substance or polysubstance abuse, its interplay with mental health, when you started your practice versus what you see now, can you talk a little bit about that interplay and how much it complicates the treatment? And okay. Yeah, well, I think we were aware, certainly back in the 70s when I started practice, that we needed mental, uh, that, we needed that we needed substance abuse services. Hazelden was starting to get, things like that were beginning to bubble up. Uh, but that's usually for the rich and for the people mm -hmm. from uh, Saudi Arabia or whatever. <laughs> uh, the, the thing, the, though, the idea that, and, and Alcoholics Anonymous, mm -hmm. very, very strong, wonderful stuff by Bill, uh, Bill and, the, and, the, and Dr. Bob uh, with, the, with the big book, and uh, the idea of, of doing something, the idea that addiction can be treated, mm -hmm. and, and, of course, I found out, of course, it can be treated, and, it can, and medications can be used, and all kinds of combinations, again, using this sort of multifaceted model, getting the patient involved in making it work. It works uh, to do it. Um, but we've, again, split that off from so-called mental health, but not really. Um, I've asked uh, what the definition of mental health is, and nobody in the advocacy community, as far as I can tell, really has one, mm -hmm. except what I learned in the psychiatric realm, you know, calling people having schizophrenia or certain types of chemical dependency or bipolar disorder or what. Now, now the big one is PTSD, mm -hmm. of course. Everybody's being traumatized, and now <laughs> we've got to have treatment for that. We're talking to people, but now it's become advocacy right. and, uh, and preferential treatment for certain populations. Well, I mean, in, in certain states, it, 
this is in that same vein of the uh, deinstitutionalization and what we're doing to these people is dehumanizing is so bad. O okay, maybe we we're institutionalizing too many people. But I feel like the that same pendulum when it comes to addiction, right? The, it's not good to be addicted to these drugs, right? I mean, if you're, you're unable to do your ADLs and keep a job and, you know, keep things together and you're just, you know, addicted to fentanyl or narcotics or whatever it is, methamphetamines. Well, that's my, that's my, my view. I, d I, d I don't think that, uh, to me, this gets us into the sort of Zen diagram between civil liberties and... Mm -hmm and living a healthy, happy life and having social supports, those three circles. How do you combine those things? Well, um, we've, we've, we've allowed a, a sort of um, uh, breakdown in any kind of sensible policy toward people on the street who are shooting up. And it's not only because they're committing crimes, it's because, as you implied, Neil, their lives are miserable. Their lives are miserable. They're not that happy. No, no one wants to be no, there. I think no. if you ask them, help me, get out, right? I mean, the, the California's model of giving you spaces to shoot up, right. giving you places to live in right. so that you can be in the state, um, you know, whereas the Dutch model is, you know, these things are legal. We're going to catch you, and we're going to give you a choice, which is a big intervention with your family, support, all this stuff, or we're going to send you to jail. And if you choose option one, then there's no criminal record, there's no stigma attached to it, we get you the treatment you need. But if you're gonna continue to do this, sorry, we're gonna throw the book at you. Um, whereas here, we put people into prison that have ongoing substance use disorders. Um, we do very little to nothing to help them kick the substance abuse habit. And then we're somehow surprised when the rate of recidivism for committing crimes to continue to uh, pay for that substance abuse habit continues when they get out. Mm -hmm. I have I have a lot of respect for Dr. Joseph Lee, who is now heading up the Hazelton, Betty Ford. Uh, uh, yeah, Dr. Lee and others are, are very knowledgeable about what I'm going to say, and I don't mean it all to impugn what they're the good, excellent work they're doing. But even at a place like Hazelton, if you have a heroin I addiction, you go in there, you get dried out and if you have an abstinence model you're very likely to re to to reoccur and then reoffend or die mm -hmm. uh, of a, a poisoning or overdose if you get street fentanyl if you come back to the community and how to how to handle that clinically and who to direct it and i know it's 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 usually what we do is we talk about how it should be done and how the government should have this and that and the mm -hmm. other thing but making that happen is almost impossible with a huge bureaucracy with all the players and everybody trying to actually protect their own turf and you get involved in all of the coding and the administrative stuff mm -hmm. and the thing just breaks down. So it's easier in some ways just to say, okay, you have your civil liberties, you can rot with your rights on, you're on the street mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I know you aren't going to pick up your own poop with, with, a, with a plastic bag, but right. we will provide some sanitary services until it gets so bad that somebody complains and we might get thrown out of local office. I mean, that seems to be where we're at. Well, what's the exit strategy for the patient in that case? Death? Yes, I mean, how, yes. It, death it, is the exit strategy. There, because there is no way that they're going to miraculously one day wake up without intervention 
get clean, stay clean, That's get right. a job. You don't usually wake society. up one day. I Even Hollywood movies are very rarely make that claim, yeah. that you one day wake up and say, my God, I've had enough of this. <laughs> I mean, alcoholics are, can do that, but then they have to go to a meeting and get support. Right. They have to do a lot of other things and make it happen and get a sponsor and have usually with a family background or maybe a family physician or somebody that's behind them. Well, you mentioned AA, which is incredibly successful. It I'm is. unaware of any data on a more successful strategy, right. maybe some right. early data on certain psychedelics coming close to what AA can do. But AA uh, has a religious component yes, to it. Yes, it does. And do you think that has been part of the reason why it's been de-emphasized? Uh, I don't know whether it's quite that way. I think it's de-emphasized because, one, it's anonymous, and nobody gets paid for it, <laughs> unless you're a donor that gives, I guess, something to create it. Uh, and Croc, of course, did uh, with the Hazleton situation. He called it Cork because he didn't want to be called a Croc you know, <laughs> <laughs> building out there. But, but the idea of, of supporting and people like Vern Johnson and doing interventions and all of that in Minnesota, the Minnesota model, if you will, for mm -hmm. chemical dependency, it's really modeled on Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you think Minnesota and America, uh, the collective aggregate mental health of the state and the nation, are better or worse than when you started? I have no idea. I, I actually sort of rebel at the question because I think it's a presumptuous question. Mm. If you can't define what mental health is, how can you define whether it's more prevalent or not? So this, so I would argue the stigma of poor levels of mental health would be things like school shootings, homeless on the streets, levels of crime, um, many of those. Well, how about, how about the fact that so many people can't read and they aren't learning in school? And they aren't prepared to work. Or they grow up in single-family households. Well, right? they may. I, I don't care what kind of a uh, family you grew up in. If you, if you can't function in society and you have no self-esteem, you have no sense of self-worth, you have no sense of being able to manage your own life. Right. I mean, is that mental health? I think so. I, th I, th I would agree with you, too. I mean, I think <laughs> some of these things that we see, I mean, it, it, school shootings, right? I mean, th th there were just as many guns per capita, you know, growing up. And I have yeah. friends who grew up yeah. on the range that, like, every pickup truck had a rifle on the back of the pickup truck in the school parking lot during deer season, right? Zero school shootings. Yeah. What happened to, 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 to create some of these things that, you know, I think the general population looks at and says, something is very wrong with mental health. Well, yeah, uh, nobody can argue that guns kill people and adolescents. Well, plenty of people do. <laughs> I know. Gun, but, but bullets come from guns and if we're going to get concrete, then if we could get rid of the guns, then we'd get rid of the bullets, and then people wouldn't care. But it's, it's sort of like Alice in Wonderland thinking, to think that way in my mind. Bec the real issue is how do, how do adolescents get motivated to get armed and shoot each other? Right, the motivation. What, right. what goes wrong what goes that wrong? you think that this and solution— And what, what needs to go right, is what I, as, a, as a, somebody who's concerned about remedies, what are we going to do about it? And this isn't— uh, you're aggrieved by some school bully. No. You go shoot the school bully. This is you shoot up a room of innocent kindergartners, right? Or, I mean, or you have who have nothing. Oh yeah, you're thinking about the, the school trend. shooting. Yeah. Some of these Sandy Hook or Uvalde right, or right, the, right, right. The, this is a uh, a senseless act of violence against people that have no relationship right. to the offender. Absolutely. And that is 
terrifying. It is. Um, the mainstream media, in some ways, glorifies it by continuing to mention their names, so that ever since Columbine, it's just these people that are barely hanging on, that are quite ill, they're, you know, whatever goes wrong in their head, they get to the point where they're like, well, my life is worth nothing, I'm gonna at least be famous. It's really hard to know what's going through their heads. Uh, I would, I just if I had another few years to live, or maybe I have a few, but I, if I had a big career ahead, I'd certainly want to study that. Mm -hmm. I'd want to know what the, the mentality of these folks is, and I think the media is interested in that, and I think all of us are, would like to know what, what's going through these people's heads. Yeah. And, um, and, we, and a lot of things are going through their heads, and somehow they end up shooting a gun and killing somebody. But too often, at least from what I'm learning, it's going on uh, here in Minneapolis among uh, gang members that are shooting mm -hmm. each other. They're warring. I mean, growing up in New Orleans, Minnesota, we would have our feuds and stuff like that, but we didn't have, we didn't have weapons, and we weren't shooting each other. Uh, we were maybe bullying each other a little bit, but we learned how to deal with that. Yeah. But yeah. It, this is a completely different order of business here. Yes. This is life and death stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it used to be talking to people who grew up in rough neighborhoods in the cities. Uh, someone transgressed, well, they got a beating. And then that was it, right? The, 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 that was the end. You, you beat them up. You had a little fight. There was no open that someone looks at you wrong. You open the trunk of your car, you pull out a fully automatic weapon, and you just start shooting up the neighborhood. And that's what it's become in North Minneapolis, just this grotesque, senseless violence. Well, I have been very impressed during the last two or three years with the sense of abhorrence in the black community in Brooklyn Center and in North Minneapolis with what's happening to their children, what's mm -hmm. happening to their families, to the safety. These parents are very, very concerned about it, whether they're single moms or whether they're married or not. I think that's that's part of it. But I, I, I and I, I, I really respect uh, Kendall Calls and Sheila. I also like uh, Don Samuels and Sandra mm -hmm. in uh, North Minneapolis. They're they're trying awfully hard to change this, and uh, to to change that dynamic so that these young men don't end up killing each other, you know, mm -hmm. and killing little babies and, and, mm -hmm. all, and frightening grandma at the uh, Twins game and whatever it is. Yeah. So uh, this has got to change. It's got to change. So we talked about clinical practice a bit, how that changed. Um, I mean, even the, pharm the pharmacology of when you started, what did you have? Like the first generation, right. yeah, right. typical anti-psychotic, Thor Thorazine. It was <laughs> pretty new, right, right. <laughs> When I started, uh, that was in the 50s and 60s, that was, we, that was sort of discovered anecdotally, as you know, because we thought it was an anti-emesis drug, and then we found out that some of these people who were hallucinating seemed to uh, stop hallucinating or do a lot better with their hallucinations. It was more useful. Uh, well, it's funny, because thalidomide also, <laughs> anti-emesis drug, had a slightly different, although it's oh. come back. Oh, yeah. So it has its, and uh, it's actually, right. you, well, we use it in dermatology I mean a little it's, bit now. Yes, but I would say that I went through a period, and uh, this was in the around 1980 and beyond, where psychopharmacology sort of took off, and it was going to replace Freud and and psychoanalysis and talking and all of that, and uh, we were going to really get to the brain chemistry, the fundamentals of the brain chemistry, and understanding that, which may have been in the minds of that uh, chief who saw it didn't see me as a researcher when I even when I got out of the Navy. 
And that, but that had became sort of, um, in my opinion, it hasn't really paid off for psychiatry. I, I think even the neurologists who split from the psychiatrists from the large clinic I was in when Harold Naran went out and started the Minneapolis Clinic of Neurology, they divorced the psychiatrists or the other way around. I don't know who <laughs> arranged the divorce, but they split mental and physical at that point. And, but the psychopharm and the uh, idea of understanding brain um, anatomy, physiology, and uh, neuronal connections and things like that. It's, it's advanced considerably. It's been a big deal in radiology, as you know, with all the MR, MRIs right. and all of the research, the PhDs are being uh, uh, produced around those issues. But it, it, it hasn't addressed some of these issues that we've already discussed about continuity of care, uh, the linkage between needing different levels of care and maintaining relationship-based treatments sure. yeah. and having doctors that are involved with patients over the long pull. I've seen, you know, second generation uh, atypical antipsychotics do amazing things yes. for some of my patients who suffer greatly. In dermatology, we run into a fair amount of delusional disorders of delusions of parasitosis. Um, you'll also run into some of these other, you'll get um, borderline folks, some of the, the access to folks come in uh, and body dysmorphia and some of these other issues and you know some people i mean you you know i mean delusions are extraordinarily hard hard to treat but i've seen some patients if they have a, that window of that little crack of insight that you can open that door and then with therapy and then with some pharmacology and close follow-up and helping them you can kind of help them regain because some of these folks are incredibly sick i mean they will mutilate their bodies in the belief oh, yes. that they have yes. bugs inside them and 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 obviously they, they do not, but they firmly believe it. And no. that truth is true to them. So they're right. not dishonest in the sense So if you were going to do a Socratic dialogue with one of yeah. these delusional people, yeah. which is something I would attempt, yeah. I would say, oh, you, you have the belief that these bugs are causing mm -hmm. this thing. Oh, I see. Well, how would we, how would we be able to find these bugs? Uh, we would start getting them involved in a collaborative exercise yeah. and trying to well, determine a way to, to, to ascertain what is truthful and what isn't, which is sort of the Beautiful Mind movie, remember, mm -hmm. with Russell Crowe sure. and, yeah. and John Nash, uh, the John Nash character. No, it breaks down because they'll always have the, it's a, we'll call it a matchbox sign. So it's a matchbox. It used to be a matchbox, now it's a Ziploc bag filled with serum crust and, okay. and scabs and all these little things that identify and we're like, okay. you know, see, see this you little see fiber here? There. And yep. you're like, yeah, well, you go. but that's not, a, so then you're arguing about reality. Right. Right. So the, the reality is- Under Newtonian issues, uh, whether the sun goes around the earth or vice versa or whatever. That's right. So what I, what I tell them is like, look, I believe you. I, I don't think you're lying to me. I, you firmly believe that you have bugs. Uh, and I'm fully willing to accept that you believe that. What is the impact of your belief on, on your life? Well, they're miserable. On what's, yes. So they're all on miserable. what's going on yes. now. They, they want and it what, and what, why yes. we're talking about yeah. this. But then I say, you know, in return, what I'd ask you to understand is that I'm not, that, that I believe just as firmly as you believe you have bugs, just equally firmly I believe you do not. Yeah, but I'm going to vote Democrat and you're going to vote Republican. So that's that. So all we're, I care we're split about here. We, all I care about is making you better. Would you like to get better? And that's, well, that's usually what they're I'm like. Here. I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm hiring you to help me get. That's better right. Here. I can tell that you're miserable, right? We'd like these sores to heal up. I don't want you to be itchy all the time. 
So well, if we what can about agree this to box of scabs I've got here? Yeah, absolutely. Believe that you have that box of scabs, but we're just going to disagree on what's inside it. I'm going to tell you it's a scab. You're going to tell me it's a bug. But if we can just move past that and focus on getting your symptoms better. There you go. I think that we can get, wouldn't you like to see your kids again? Wouldn't sure you like would. to have those sores healed? My wouldn't you like to not be, a be itchy? I would be happier if I weren't running around, That's you right. know, scaring her all the time. With now, stuff. I'd say that in practice, three out of four get up and leave, yeah. and they're mad. But the one in four where you can just crack that door a little <laughs> bit. Hey, there's these, I think I have some folks that would do a great job working with you talking through these things. And I do think I'm comfortable starting you on medication if you want. It's going to be called an atypical antipsychotic. I don't think you're crazy, but it helps calm down those impulses from your brain that are telling you that you feel this itch. Wouldn't you like to feel less itchy? Wouldn't you like to have less pain? Would you be willing to do it? And in order to reasonably do it, we'll check a couple labs. We'll check your EKG. We'll follow you very closely. We'll see you back every couple weeks until you're getting better. Um, extraordinarily difficult, but to me, the foundation of that, you know, I was taught that the delusion is designed or defined as a fixed false belief. Is that still a fair definition? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. But something has to be true. There has to be an objective, truthful reality. You are not 500 pounds. My skin is not white. You do not have bugs. And you can't even diagnose a delusion if there is no hard, anchored reality. The chemtrails are not real. 5G does not cause COVID, right? But people hold on to these ideas. And as soon as you are unwilling to say that there is an objective, truthful reality, you've done your patients a disservice. True. But you have to learn, as at least I remember from my old bridge days, you have to learn how to finesse. Right. So maybe you don't get into a... Right. A dispute about but, whether or not there are bugs or not. Well, one of my concerns is that I've seen that there's this, the New York Times had this interesting article maybe a month or so ago about this movement starting that maybe we should believe that you have friends that no one can see that are talking to you. Maybe we should believe, right, well, for I a schizophrenic I don't think we patient. have to believe or not. I think we have to say, well, what are the consequences of that belief in terms of X, Y, or Z? Mm -hmm. And... And how does that impact? And then they'll repeat about the bugs and the, and the whatever it is, and you'll say, well, gee, is, you know, remember, that seems to be a hypothesis you have. Mm -hmm. right. So you go back to science here. That's right. Remember? We start at the hierarchy of science. We, we, at the top, well, at the bottom you have, obser excuse me, you have, uh, you have observation, right. and then you have some type of inference or generalization, and then you move up to mm -hmm. theory, and philosophy. But it's falsifiable the whole way up. It is. And there and has that's to what be I, ways that you can verify. That's right. So that's what I feel as being But you can skip lost. a step sometimes. That's the finesse. But if it's unfalsifiable, it's not science, right? So like religion, for example, non-rational questions, uh, you can't falsify them, right? God is or isn't. Um, we're here for specific reasons. But what are the consequences of your beliefs in God? Or how do you believe in mm -hmm. God? Things like that are important questions. Right, but when it comes to you know the science side of it, is it's no longer science if it can't be falsifiable. So, for example, the assertion that uh, that's true that COVID vaccines can have no uh, no downsides, no no harmful side effects. Yes, and that's, that's some of the hypothesis. terrible mistakes that have been made in our. That's a hypothesis, right? And it's provable right. or disprovable. Exactly. But if you keep piling up evidence on the side of you can no longer hold that hypothesis, right? It's right. Well, you can't. You yeah. can't continue to you hold on to it right. you because now you've entered and a you certainly delusional cannot state. force people to get vaccinations if you're claiming that this is going to prevent transmission. 
or prevent hospitalization right. or reinfection so this, or something. This death of science that, you know, like I'm a scientist, right? You're a scientist. We, we practice in the scientific trades. The truth is... Well, the person at the University of Minnesota would have said, I don't know if you're ever going to be a real <laughs> scientist. But I, yes, I aspire to scientific method. I find that right. I must go resort to that. Well, we utilize data that's created exactly. using that. And that is one of my biggest concerns about what I see happening in academia, in medicine, and in science in general, is that it's slipping towards dogmatism, which defines cults and religions. And it's slipping away from falsifiability. If you hold, if I you also, I think there's a big rationalization too in the academic community. There, the uh, and I'll tell you what it is. They're saying, well, we were gonna, we're, we, we want to keep our jobs here at the university, so we're gonna go along with this. Whether you're uh, Aaron Cariotti at the University of California, right? That's uh, right. Lo famously lost his job yes, for being correct. Job, absolutely. We're we're gonna bypass that. So, and there are some benefits to diversity. Uh, equity and inclusion, which include bringing in more people who have different colored skin and different backgrounds and cultures. Well, in academia, That's a you good could define thing. diversity of having conservatives because there are none. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but they don't but, want that. But diversity. what I'm saying is that they'll bypass that and say, okay, you want to increase the variety of students we have. That's cool. But we're still going to be scientists, too. Uh, right, right. There, and, and we should still strive for excellence. Yes. But then what happens is that you can't say certain things. You right. can't challenge certain things. At the University of Chicago, my goodness, I can remember all of our grand rounds when we would have somebody with the status of an Israel gold diamond who's a pre preeminent behaviorist taking on some of the, somebody from the Psycholetic Institute who would be arguing with a psychopharmacologist about the proper mm -hmm. way to approach a given patient's needs. Well, that's how that, you advance. You, you can't do that. That's it, how you advance the science, right? You right. argue. Everything is falsifiable. You have to be able to defend your f viewpoint with data. We have to be honest about what we know and what we don't know and how sure we are about those things. And if you come up with a cohesive theory that debunks gravity and you can prove it, we have to be willing to abandon gravity, right? We, had, we abandoned Newtonian mechanics because yes, as you get close to the speed of light, it all falls apart. Right. But, you know, we were able to do that because we believed in a system that But worked. that doesn't say that Newtonian dynamics is, is wrong it's, Oh, it's well, It just says that there's a realm or a, that's or right. a, a certain universe that it works with. But we didn't cling to and it. And it's not, it's not necessarily the micro yeah. Uh, yeah. realm either. So, but we have to be able to be clear about what our, what our playground is, what we're dealing mm -hmm. with here. So that's my worry about where medicine is going now, is it, 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 it's assertions. My favorite one in dermatology is the myth of COVID toes. So that was one of the poor, it, it was an assertion by uh, a couple folks. The peer-reviewed literature did not do its job in asking the right questions. They allowed those papers in, and now all of a sudden you have mothers in Boston concerned that their kids' perniosis, which is common in the springtime and harmless, is uh, COVID toes or is in any way harmful. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't exist. That's right. A and there is no real data that it exists. And you can't continue to yell louder about your assertion and then stomp your feet when people give you counterfactual data points that suggest that. And that same thing goes for the vaccine. The same thing goes for masks. The same thing goes for a variety of issues. Yeah, right. And if we abandon those core scientific principles, we are going to do our patients a great disservice. And the oath you and I took is to those patients. Right. And that's what Scott Atlas emphasized about what was going on right. with the, the COVID situation in Washington, even during the Trump administration with uh, 
with uh, Dr. Fauci and, and Dr. Burks and, and the committee. Yeah, the they people who paying, they weren't paying attention to yeah. the research, the evidence that was there. Yeah, and uh, and, that and people still believe in it. Even when Burks now says in her book, uh, "Yeah, I knew this wasn't going to stop transmission." Well, so, so did people who had any degree of. You, you don't immunize in the middle of a uh, outbreak because your opponent is constantly changing. <laughs> and so you'll get this happy valley for two months and then everything is gonna go to hell because- But why can't you say, we don't know this yet? Uh, uh, and yeah. why can't we, this is why Dr. Marty McCary from Johns Hopkins, mm -hmm. in my view, makes so much sense. Yeah, he, he's great. He, he really is. He, he talks about what do we know and what do we not know and how does that impact your options to make decisions? Well, you and I are clinicians so we are confronted by all of our mistakes. Right. Academics bear no such consequences in large part, and so they can afford to be arrogant. You and I, if we get a diagnosis wrong, two weeks later, you didn't make me better. It's very humbling. So I'm used to being wrong. It's I'm used to screwing up. It's also very, very restoring because you say, well, geez, thank you. Yeah. Geez, no, Give me I, a chance to learn. Yeah. We're both going to learn here, and let's do it better. So the, more, the longer I stay in practice, the more willing I am to say, I don't know. Yeah. And I don't know why you got better. I don't know what you had, but aren't we thankful it's gone? Well, then the patient is going to say to you, well, Dr. G, if you don't know and I don't know, how are we going to find out? And that's what you want. Yeah. Because then you have a collaborator. You have a colleague. Yeah. <laughs> well, in some answers, we just don't know. You know, sometimes I'm right. like, look, you know, God knows, and there's nothing. We don't have the tools yet. Ask me in 50 years at the end of my career. We might have more tools. We okay. might be able to tell you why it happened. Well, in the meantime, maybe you could put aside that box of scabs that you have and let's just try, try it my way. Let's, let's see if it, yeah, let's see if we get you better. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, even if we don't know how it works, <laughs> let's try. So th the, the wokeism, you know, that's infected scientific inquiry, medical practice, it's infected. The University of Minnesota Medical School, I'm not sure it could be called a medical school anymore. I don't know about that. I really don't yeah. know. I was, well, I was a clinical professor there. I was a adjunct professor for, for eight years. And then when there was a scandal around some drug testing that was going on, or drug uh, studies that were going on, and they completely turned over the Department of Psychiatry. And many of us senior uh, adjunct people were dismissed. And so I haven't had any chance to talk to the students uh, in the last few years, as I used to do, to find out what they're learning and what it's what's going on. I, I can tell you what it was like then, five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. They would say, we have to get, join a big clinic. We, we, we don't really have any option to go into private practice now. Uh, even even getting a PhD is sort of a problem because we don't know what, what value we'll have when we get out. So the, 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 the residents in psychiatry were telling me that they weren't sure who was going to value them after they finished. And they had to gear and shape their experiences to, to uh, obviously, to anticipate how they were going to take care of themselves and their families. Right. Well, how has psychiatry changed in terms of the APA, your professional organization? Oh, well, you mentioned this woke business. Uh, that's been, I think I sent you a couple of emails about that, maybe not. If, but the American psychiatric is very much into uh, believing that, uh, that, that the solution is to, to, to develop more psychiatrists and more providers, they call them, that are going to, to mirror the patients in terms of different cultural and racial characteristics, okay. and, and that that should be affirmative action. 
Well, not only that, I also wonder, you know, some of the the line they've taken and other specialty societies have taken on, you know, gender affirming care and gender dysphoria and oh, absolutely. always believing the patient, right? I should believe that you have bugs, even though objectively you do not. Well, I, I've tried to look into this some. Uh, I haven't had too much experience in my own practice with people who are struggling with their, their, uh, with their gender identification. Uh, I've had a number of times in various venues and experiences with people who are homosexual who were afraid to, to have it revealed to when I was right. in the service, mm -hmm. yeah. for example. And, and, and we could, that would be worth talking about that maybe. But that's changed now, that's completely reversed. Now it's become you've got to be socially acceptable by agreeing with these woke precepts, the CRT, if you will, that is publicized in the in the uh, Murray book and uh, and in another uh, uh, the idea that we that there's an opposition oppositional force that's operating here. You identify as a gay person or as a straight person or as a bipolar person or a this person or that and therefore you're, you're you've got to fight for your rights and they're, they're going to be they're discriminating mega type people who are going to push you aside and 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 not allow you to have access to your rights and your and and you and we're going to support that and that this is constant turmoil and battle about uh, getting your share of the pie at some level, I mean, it's a it's sort of a sick kind of a notion. I mean, I don't think even Marx would have accepted this. I, I really don't. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious what he would say about it. I mean, think about just the concept. Can the concept of gayness even exist if there is not an immutable male and an immutable female? Because what defines gayness is same-sex attraction, right? Yeah, yeah. And so if you have no male and you have no female, and now we have an incoming Supreme Court justice who can't define well, what there, a woman there, is. There are clearly people who can have sex with, with males or females. and Well, you can believe. Again, you can believe that you're in the wrong body, but the reality yeah, is... I mean, it's, I mean, it doesn't necessitate believing you're in the wrong body. It just believes you like to have sex with oh, I meant right. men so, or right. women so or forget, that's right, females that's right. or males that's or right. people with penises or vaginas or breasts or no breasts or this or that. I mean, you can. there's all kinds of varieties. But it doesn't of require an alteration of reality. It doesn't require no. someone else no, to say that... This is what I like to do. That's that's right. So th there is no redefinition of reality, and that's what scares me the most is this comfort with a increasing swath of the medical establishment to attempt to redefine what cannot be redefined. So I think you're absolutely right you're a male. About that. You have very one profound. X and one Y chromosome. Yes. Now you can be a male, oh, or you could be an XXY. You can right. They, they always <laughs> love to go to the the, the very rare right, um, right. And the XYYs but, don't but, make but, it. But, but the XXYs don't necessarily have all of these preferential. Uh, right, but there's also a, f either. a fact that they are XXY, yes. right? That, that, that's immutable. So, right. so you have this immutable fact, and then layered on top of it, you have these other concepts, right? So you're a male who is sexually attracted to women or to men or to both or to neither. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that you are a male. Or you like to talk rather than right. do something else. But you can even have a belief that you are a you believe that you're a woman, but the reality is still that you have XY chromosomes, which defines you as male. Um, the problem becomes. Why don't you say I prefer to live as a woman, or I prefer? I don't think any. I don't think uh, and, many and maybe, would have maybe, a problem with maybe that. Maybe a good cook is not necessarily a man or a woman, or a good, as I'm learning how to do, how, that somebody can handle the wash, mm -hmm. or 
take care of, you learn different things as you go through your life cycle. Right. Um, but you can't redefine the fact that you are, in fact, a man, right? So if you want to change your name, I'll call you by whatever name you want to be called. But the, the, the reality is that you can't just be a woman, just like I can't be a fire engine. Uh, I can't be a bottle of water. I'm just not. And so th this issue with reality becoming something that we can mold and twist and distort and destroy just because someone tells it to me, I don't see how you can have any definition of a variety of conditions, but specifically any delusional disorder, if there is no objective reality. So how can I tell someone suffering from bipolar schizophrenia that um, those voices are not real? Uh, if I have to accept their reality, that I that well, I, I, I would say you don't have real. to get into that. I mean, in I, practical terms, but the, the yeah, wokeness wants you to affirm, affirm and establish, and and you well, you the, can't even the wokeness will say that we're gonna, we're not going to fire you if you don't accept the fact. Th that that's right. So that's the problem. So you can help a patient without there are agreeing. consequences to this wokeness that are inappropriate. Just well, like I think the president's you harmed speech the last night. That yes. somehow we're going to you know all these seventy five million people that voted for president, former President Trump are now uh, racists or something, or they're a threat to our country. I mean, that is, that's sick thinking, in my view. Well, that's rhetoric that, that uh, leads you towards badness, not away from it. Um, I mean, the, the whole macabre well, it's, backdrop. It's exclusionary thing. I mean, yes. you're, you're setting up uh, Nazis versus uh, somebody else's uh, well othering othering is always the first step to dehumanization that's right right exactly so Other, what did othering that's the right othering so idea. so what did all of our propaganda look like in world war ii yes. we drew the japanese as monkeys yes. we drew the germans with outsized features what did yes, the germans yes, do yes, they drew yes. jews you know, jews with certain features othering and dehumanizing is the first step towards genocide it's the first step towards Civil wars is the first step towards it's, it's a social the Hutus step. and the Tutsis. It's a social step because if yep. you talk to the, some of those old Nazis and people in Germany that are still alive, and there are a few, and we've seen some of those interviews on YouTube and so on, they actually were taught to hate and mm -hmm. think that way. Right. And this is what I view as what's going on with a lot of the CRT stuff. Well, so the institutions now are selecting for people, so medical schools, there was this article in the National Review yesterday, are specifically, the University of Minnesota is guilty to this, which is why I'm not sure they're a medical school anymore. They are selecting for students who buy into the assertions that are non-falsifiable of the DEI cult. And if you don't buy into those, you will not get any admittance. It doesn't matter that you can do the math. It doesn't matter that you will treat every patient who comes in front of you like an individual and not as the member of a class. You will do the best you can for every person, which is all that should matter. Right. Um, I don't care what the political leanings of my patients are. They're my patients, and I'm going to do everything That's I can right. to take care of them. Well, you care to the extent that it affects their ability to get well or to do better. That's right. And for you to do your work with them. Right. But now the institutions are selecting for these things. Yes. The military is selecting for them. The our institutions of so-called higher education are selecting for pe they're selecting for groupthink, and they're going to go with an indoctrination program that others half of the population. So you are automatically bad if you do not subscribe to the full DEI propaganda machine. That systemic racism is everywhere. The only vestige of systemic racism in this country that remains is affirmative action, because by definition it defines 
and, and excludes based on race. Mm -hmm. uh, predominantly Asians and whites are the victims of it, yes. even though Asians are <laughs> definitely a minority in this country. But we are discriminated against every day. Um, Do you consider yourself to be an Asian? My I, I consider myself to be an American, but I'm of Asian descent. And uh, my kids but are. I mean, if you were Chinese or Japanese or Indonesian or. Yeah, I mean, else. Asia obviously is such a huge. I think people sometimes <laughs> put Indian <laughs> subcontinent into its own bucket. I mean, how many uh, how many bubbles do I have on yeah, the on the thing exactly. to fill out, right? I mean, yeah, I it's mean, more I, accurate. I, than it I was. Be. Uh, I the the uh, Twin City Psychiatric Society is is has redefined itself now as a public health organization. Mm -hmm. And as part of its recruitment to to reestablish its membership and and to move on, it has a it has on its webpage now a uh, a questionnaire which asks you to uh, assign to yourself or to report on various characteristics your your color your age your religion your this the your the whatever it is, but it but it it, it I guess there's a kind of a, a value or a seen value in everybody having to declare to some authority, mm -hmm. whether it's a recruiting, uh, recruiting for, for, for a, a medical association or a public health association, mm -hmm. what your identity is as defined by these characteristics. Right. That's the part that's so insidious. I think. Well, but it plays into the Marxist playbook of dividing us in, as opposed to saying, look, uh, there are other domains that we could be looking at. Are you hardworking? Are you kind? That's are you right, nice? Exactly. Are you generally happy? Right, are you right. disagreeable, agreeable? All of those, we, if we needed to somehow categorize people or look at axes that are more valuable, I care much more about how hardworking you are, how kind you are, how likely you are Isn't it interesting how the Nazis would say that the Jews were greedy or lazy or this or that? And they had, all to, all the they had to make, make, make them into evil people mm -hmm. in some fashion in order to justify these horrible things that were, that were going on. Right, so categorization because it helps you other. If you spend time with individuals, the class or group you belong to starts to melt away, and you That's see right. the individual beauty and humanity in every person. Everyone's journey right, is different. Right, right. Their life story is different. Their family upbringing was different. Well, it's, it's a, it's such, that's why I th thoroughly enjoyed my, my career in psychiatry because I had the opportunity, really the privilege, of doing that with people in privacy, with dignity, with, with uh, it, what an opportunity that was. It was like traveling to different places every, every day, yeah. every part of every day. Well, and it's, you help that one person. You can only help one person. I mean, this concept of public health, like the oath I took was to help the patient in front of me, to do everything I could for that person to help them achieve their health goals oh, okay. and help them get See, better. See, I get, I get upset because, again, the public health really, and I, I did this uh, the other day, I went through an exercise of what is the definition of public health versus Hippocratic medical practice mm -hmm. and comparing and contrasting the two. There isn't really a good definition of health. There really isn't. We can define it in terms of maybe how long you live, Sure. But that's a pretty but poor metric. How much, how much you weigh? Right. Huh? We've got a lot of awful... Oh, we're not allowed to ask that anymore. <laughs> that's fat shaming. <laughs> Even though uh, you will definitely live shorter and more miserable lives. Or, or, if right. you, uh, or how much marijuana you use or don't or drink or whatever. And, you know, smoke. Smoking cigarettes, of course, was the big success story for the public health movement and how that got conflated with good patient care. 
What I find fascinating about the, so an important distinction, smoking versus nicotine. And not yes, all, yes, yes. nicotine is fairly harmless. Yes. Uh, possibly a net benefit. It's a nootropic. Yes, um, that's right. Depending on the mechanism that you take it on, if you just stick a patch on it, you're not going to become addicted to it because no. there's not that spike, that right. blood spike that you get with smoking. The public health establishments desire to become dishonest about the distinction between nicotine and smoked tobacco and then any other form of tobacco, simply putting them all into right, this bucket. Right. And, of, and they're including all equally marijuana bad. plants. That, that's right. So marijuana is an interesting one you should talk about because as a generalization, I would say psychiatrists don't like marijuana. Would that be fair? I think it depends on your politics again and what, you're, what you think you can say safely to, to maintain <laughs> your but what's the social truth? status. What's the truth? Because I think you know, Alec Berenson's book, Tell Your Children, yes. phenomenal read for anyone that, that uh, you know, is unabashedly pro-marijuana. Um, and I'm not. I'm not on that bandwagon because I think that there are a significant number of people, maybe in the 1% to 2% range, who unfortunately have psychotic breaks in a, oh, yeah. in a dose-dependent manner. And we have uh, THC now available in super high concentrations. Yes. Um, we have you know, older records from Indian psychiatric hospitals talking about patients really? who had bond cookies, right, low THC <laughs> form versus people that would have, you know, or even in Mexico, it would be like Sensamia versus another version that was lower. And you can see a dose-response curve, higher rates of psychiatric breaks. And when some of these people break, they murder people around them, they yeah. hurt themselves. Yeah, that's right. But all of a sudden, it's this unalloyed good, and it's at least be honest about what the data is. And all right, we're back. The miracle of editing. We had a little break. <laughs> got some water, got relaxed. We were talking about uh, dose-dependent toxicity, which THC. Because, you know, it's, it's in vogue now, right. and I would say even some of the public health authorities, which is so funny, having yes, talked about cigarettes, yes. that they're willing to throw nicotine alone under the bus, which is a harmless or potentially positive substance for the mo majority of the population, right. and yet a drug that can cause a permanent psychotic break in perhaps one or two in 100 people uh, in a dose-dependent manner they are unwilling to ask hard questions of. Mm -hmm. And it's that the unwilling, you don't need to have the answer, but ask the question. Because, you know, if, if this concept of public health matters and you want to try to improve the mean health of the average citizen, then it would seem to me that studying the potential toxicity when it has a well-documented antecedent history showing a dose-response toxicity would be something that scientific inquiring minds would want to know the answer to, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Don't just call up your dispensary and say, is this good or bad for you? Well, they might have a conflict of interest <laughs> in telling you the truth. Mm -hmm. And law enforcement sees this. I think in psychiatry, because y you guys are at the cutting edge of seeing what substances do to people in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it's selection bias because you don't see the people it helps, and maybe there's a therapeutic benefit for some folks. But what's indisputable is that there's a negative consequence for some. Yes, there's no doubt about that. I would just, uh, talking, picking up on the idea of uh, public health and uh, the Twin Cities Medical Society's new mission, um, one of the reasons that uh, Commissioner Ellinger, I think, uh, resigned or was Who is taken Commissioner out. Ellinger? 
He, 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 Ed Ellinger, uh, used to run the uh, Boynton Health Service. Okay. He's uh, So that's student he, health service at the U of M. At the University of, and then he became the commissioner of health in Minnesota. Okay. So Jan Malcolm's antecedent. Yes, Jan Malcolm's. She One did the, such a good job. He had, Gosh, what a hero. No, <laughs> I don't, I really don't know enough about that to comment about her particular performance. I know reading her interview in the Twin Cities uh, Metro Doctors Journal, the, the fall edition, that she's, she was very concerned about the, the way that the, the lockdowns were done, and, but also focused on the question of the impact on various communities of color, of oh this, yes. of that, and the other thing. And that's usually the way this goes. But getting back to Dr. Ellinger, he, he was charged with a rather almost impossible task as Commissioner of Health. He was supposed to, and I don't know if you remember this, Neil, I'm sure you do, because as a practitioner, we were expected to submit quality measures <laughs> to an agency in the yes. <laughs> Minnesota government. Yeah, which define was, quality. Right, to define quality. And that gets us into uh, all kinds of issues uh, uh, concerning, like in marijuana, uh, uh, whether or not that should be used, you know, whether marijuana should be used for uh, panic disorder or this or that. Mm -hmm. And then Ellinger was signing off on these different diagnoses, different labels. Oh. Uh, what a what a what a awful position to put him in, really. I mean, uh, if how does he get to evidence? How does he make scientific decisions about that as a bureaucrat? Well, you you can't. No. I mean that that's why it, it needs to. What they could do is greenlight funding to study these, make that data available to practitioners, and let the people the people at the pointy end of the spear weigh that data and try to do the best for the patient in front of them. Are there situations where it could have a therapeutic benefit? Probably, but if we haven't studied it, then we shouldn't just assume that it's always going to be beneficial. And um, you probably want someone in the loop who's going to be managing it or knowing if it's starting to get off the rails or if there's no therapeutic benefit, why are we doing it? Maybe there's some other alternative treatment or therapy that we could try, but it shouldn't be a bureaucrat. The, the, uh, the, final, the other thought I had uh, when you're talking about the marijuana is that the, the smoking uh, kills people because uh, the uh, toxicity to the, to the lungs can cause cancer, mm -hmm. can cause emphysema, all kinds of other things, and that's what that's what the killer part is. As you Th said, that's it's right. The, it's the, combu it's the it's combustion products. So so now, if you're going to have uh, buds and beads and, yeah. and whatever they are now that are, you can go and shop for them, uh, the the, pay, uh, the the consumer is going to be exposing his lungs or her lungs to that's right that stuff combustion yeah. products right. Yeah. And there's no and at the same time they're vilifying. Now I don't think vaping's good. I mean, I don't want to inhale polyethylene glycol, but it seems to be uh, less bad than inhaling combusted right. nicotine or plant products or paper. So if in a harm reduction strategy, you can get someone to go from full diesel camels to a vape pen, <laughs> haven't you helped them a bit? Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, it's like when I talk to people who drink six you know, full diesel sugar Cokes a day, and it's like, well, how about we go to three? And then we go to Diet Coke. And mm -hmm. then eventually we get you onto sparkling water because, you know, you need to drink something. I get it. But, like, probably and stopping right away is And I would, is just, I would just say that my colleague, Dr. Mark Willenbring, who has a wonderful clinic uh, designed to, to help people with, with addictions with 
really targeted scientific medicines, including buprenorphine and other mm -hmm. things, and I was prescribing that too. Uh, Which, briefly, what is buprenorphine? Buprenorphine is, is a, it's Suboxone is, is the uh, trade name of it. And if you take Suboxone, it quells the cravings for heroin and opioids. It's a long-acting mu-opioid agonist. Prince was on the verge of possibly trying before he, unfortunately... So it's a harm reduction strategy yes. to get people off of a narcotic addiction. Right, and, and you can take it chronically and reduce the dose gradually mm -hmm. and, and therefore get rid of the addiction. Incredibly helpful. Yes. Keeps people out of the hospital, keeps people out of the morgue, right. uh, and yet not always covered. Sometimes you have to fight. That's true. We, well, I mean, I, I've been out of practice now long enough, so I don't know exactly, but I think it's start, starting to come back. The, I wanted to say a thing about managed care in, in this connection. The, during the COVID ep epidemic, there were, depending on which clinic you went to, there were different policies, whether it was Alina or Health Partners or some big system, and the Mayo Clinic probably too, uh, so that they would talk about masks and they would talk about access to different types of, um, ho hopefully, uh, medications that may, may actually reduce the likelihood of infection or, or helping you deal with infection better. Well, that's more the case. Different policies depending on the clinic. Depending, so it's an administrative function that's been taken over by large healthcare system or a clinic system. So then all the providers in that system follow what the dictate is of the system. Mm. rather than the individual doctor or individual psychologist mm -hmm. or individual addiction uh, specialist uh, making those decisions. So <clears throat> you, your credentials, your boss, your job are tied to following the rules that are pushed onto you by your uh, administrative betters, for lack of a better term, in these large systems, and they don't always have a correlation to the best available. I evidence. don't think so, and and al almost always they're associated with utilization. So it's your production, uh, how, m how many patients you're seeing or not seeing or whatever. They'll tell you what the rules are in terms of the patient encounter. If I go and see a provider at a large health system. Are they working for me or are they working for somebody That's else? That's right. That's the question. That's the question every single person should ask. And it's not a political question. Can you serve more than one master? That's right. I serve the patient who sits in front of me. And I don't have a boss who's going to tell me to do something that may not be in that patient's best interest. I'm not going to listen to the government if they tell me that you need to do this thing. I will do what the aggregate scientific data and my experience indicate are in the best interest of this patient, or I will offer it and discuss it with them, and ultimately it's their body they can right. choose to, to but, take. But as part of that decision that they make, the question is, who's going to pay for it? Right. And the reality is that many patients do not have the funds to have, as I did for, for 10 years before I uh, retired, a cash practice where I take the money uh, up on the table through a credit card or whatever it is, and that's it. But I will help the patient deal with the third party that mm -hmm. he or she is involved with if they want. I, mean, I can give them codes and stuff like that, and I have an administrative assistant that can help them do that. Well, some people from the left will push back and say, oh, cash practice, that sounds so greedy. So, well, look, you know who you're working for, yeah. right? You're paying my bill. I'm working for you, and I want you to get better because I have a professional right. responsibility to do that. But at the same time, 
there is not someone sitting behind me who's pulling my strings, that's telling right. me what to do, what to prescribe, how to treat you, right. and tying my hand exactly. and that's keeping me from delivering right. the most optimal care for your situation. And the consequence of the increasing, uh, the death of private practice is that you have a few large healthcare systems providing almost all of the care yes. in the state. And the providers stuck in those systems even if they have your best interests in mind, may not be able to act on those That's because right. That's right. they need to keep their job. That's right. And every day, the administrative state, the regulations from CMS, the regulations from the state make it harder and harder to hang your own shingle. The economics drive out that. So the contract that my clinic gets is lower than the payment that the University of Minnesota might get for the exact same service, I would argue better but let's just call it a draw and say it's the same service. Why is it? Well, they're larger. They can contract for at a higher rate, and that gets passed on to the patient. So if or you have a high deductible. In the case of the Mayo Clinic, they're perceived as a destination medical center. Mm -hmm. They're better. At least that's the perception. Mm -hmm. And the patients, the consumer, agrees with that. Certainly, I would attest to the excellence of most of the Mayo Clinic doctors. But then they can command more money from the third party, can't they? They can, but Mayo's also, uh, in a predatory fashion, bought up every independent practice or hospital in southern Minnesota, save one, in Albert Lee. So they now have monopoly pricing power. Yes, they do. Mayo is not an unalloyed good simply because they're a nonprofit and have a history of doing good things. Right. They, if you live in Red Wing, you are paying twice what someone in the Twin Cities would pay for the exact same health care because your only option is Mayo. And the people in southern Minnesota need to understand that, that driving out every other smaller hospital system, buying up into practices, and then with their captive insurance company refusing to provide contracts to new market entrants yes. has resulted in higher aggregate health care costs yes. for the consumers and the businesses of southern Minnesota. Mayo has a much better lobby. They'll never admit to it. But the needs of the patient, in the words of Will and Charlie, uh, should be the only needs to be considered, unless it affects Mayo's bottom line, I guess. So that's the system that we're now uh, operating in, or that the, the new, that the providers are now operating right. in. And you really, I don't know how you do it in your clinic, but in my situation, it was pretty easy because as a, as a psychiatrist who basically likes to talk to individual patients and work with them on their treatment plans, the, the cash practice model worked very well. Yeah. But uh, for a dermatologist or for a radiologist or for almost any other specialty, I'm not sure how that goes. Well, you know, we run a very efficient ship. We're better run than any of the large uh, organization. We can pivot faster. We can serve markets that need to be served. We just opened a new clinic in Spicer because the people out there aren't served very well for dermatology services. Uh, we can do it better, and we can identify niches where we can provide excellent care, and we can aggressively exploit those niches. The large systems can't do that. Okay, but you're talking about southern Minnesota, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield is dominant in outstate Minnesota, mm -hmm. quite dominant in most areas. One of the latest developments in psychiatry and mental health has been that as they have, they went to the the uh, leadership in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, and decided that they'd set up a telehealth service for victims of police brutality, 
presumably in the black community, capital B. Mm -hmm. And I, that sort of sparked my interest because I'm thinking, well, what about if you're a black person, small b, th that, that isn't woke mm -hmm. and doesn't feel that the police are victimizing you, do you still have services? Or what is the advantage necessarily of having somebody of the same skin or presumably the same cultural experience treating you? Well, there are some advantages, but you choose your psychiatrist based on his or her ability to help you as mm -hmm. an individual person. And, and clearly there's no reason why you, if you prefer a certain religious orientation or, or, or cultural background, you shouldn't have that choice, but the choice should be up to the patient. It should be up to the patient. And I would also, you touched on two distinct but important differences, your background and the color of your skin. Do you think that a, if we go down this, the woke belief system, that a black child of a CEO and a physician is going to have more or less in common with a black resident in North Minneapolis than someone who grew up poor and white with white parents in North Minneapolis. I have what no matters more, I'd skin to tone or I'd background? I don't know. Right. This is where I personally have feel offended. I feel that it's it, you can't generalize. That's right. That way, you've got That's to right. ask people. Because you have an Indian background, doesn't mean that you think like all diasporous Indians do. Well, the majority of my so patients are white. Does that mean no, I'm incompetent no, and taking care of them? Absolutely not. And and and. And this is what I'm hearing from a lot of my black friends who live in Brooklyn Center. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, wait a minute here. We're concerned about safety and about the police, and we don't want to. And we realize that we might get picked up or, or pulled over more often. Maybe not, maybe. But then you look at the, the statistics. The statistics about, in that area, right? I mean, yeah. if 90% of the people there that are black, then 90% of the cars you pull over will have a black occupant, exactly. right? And, exactly. and so you can't compare that to the and statistics in 90% of the, or more than, well, I don't know what the percentage, but some percentage of the gang activity is African-American versus Hispanic, let's say, or yeah. some other uh, white groups or whatever they are. How do, how do you run a, uh, a system like that? Well, so this is where the disease of wokeism, yes. of having these unassailable dogmatic beliefs that are non-falsifiable hurts the exact communities yes. that they pretend to care about because yes. they're unwilling to ask the questions that might get you closer to solutions to your problem. I would say that any per, any patient or potential patient who didn't want to see me should fire me. <laughs> you know, they should have that option. They always do, yeah, right? I think so. You well, can, they don't have that option if I'm the you. only game in town and if I have to follow orders that's coming down through my administrative authority. Right. Well, right, and... and there's nothing better for the bottom line than being a monopolist. And so the large yeah. healthcare systems would like so nothing more. Two uh, economist colleagues at the University of Minnesota who look at this are, explain our healthcare system in terms of a monopoly slash monopsony. Right. It's a combination of a, mono, uh, a group of, of people who control the product and those that control buying the product. That's what. Yep, oh, or even a cartel uh, can function it, it, similarly it, it, because it, they also well, have yeah, yeah. Ag they also have a uh, aggregate pricing power that's well. And the cartel concept is is relevant in terms of government versus in private because the government does not provide, with the exception of say the VA or mm -hmm. some some of those, the government itself does not provide services. It's these are 
hospitals and clinics and so on that do it. And then, so it's the contract, mm -hmm. and that's the cartel arrangement. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, cartels have conspired to elevate prices, and that's, yes, that's the critical piece, right? OPEC gets together and says, we need to make more money, so we're going to all turn down the amount of oil we pump out. And, and I'm very sympathetic to the, to the leaders at uh, Hennepin Health uh, when I was on the Board of Trustees of the Medical Association for many years who would come and talk about how they need to be reimbursed for the care they're providing to poor and indigent people. Mm -hmm. And I remember I interned there, so mm -hmm. I know those people, and I remember the emergency room, mm -hmm. and I remember the people that would show up for primary care in the emergency room and all the rest of it. And I can understand why the leadership at Hennepin Health would say, hey, we've got to get paid here. Medicaid has to pay us more mm -hmm. to, to provide for these mm -hmm. people. Well, you mentioned, uh, I think people listening would probably identify you as right of center. You would probably self-identify as politically, right? Uh, I would say I'm a... Um, I believe I believe in patient. I'm sort of a libertarian by nature, but I'm also a civil libertarian, and believe in patient rights. And I believe uh, I believe in individual rights. And I believe uh, yes, I guess I'm right of center. Well, I mean, the the only reason because I think some of those words don't always have a ton of value. I, I agree. Um, but, but directionally, I think they have some. Is that you served on boards? You oh, were I did. I involved did. with the Very APA. Much. You were a part of these larger systems that used to right. function. Now, that is... Uh, I, I think I've been almost in all, as you were mentioning, even the state hospital system in Hawaii. I've seen, I'd like to see how the things work, right. what the strengths and weaknesses are, and each system has them. So that is, in my mind, diversity. So if I was constructing a board, I wouldn't want everyone to be right of center. I wouldn't no. want everyone to be left of center. But these institutions and governance boards now seem to be in the, in the, uh, with the concept of DEI and wokeism and allegedly going for diversity, seem to be driving out all thought that is contrary to well, their set of Well, it's a lot easier beliefs. if you can look at somebody's face and decide what color they are and whether they pass the color test or not. <laughs> I mean, that's the easy way to tell who's gonna be on your board. And that, well, that, that's right. And, and are you actually doing the people that you serve uh, any favors by no. excluding people that think differently from them? Yeah, I would want people who had a poor know, upbringing. I mean, I, the one thing I could say that I know for certain is that depend, I cannot tell what's, uh, how somebody thinks until I ask them how they think. Sure. And I find out from them how they think. Yeah. I yeah, can't absolutely. tell. I really can't. And, and we talk about uh, cultural competence, which is another uh, very interesting con which is sort of what the president is railing at as he's barking into the into the microphone last night about the uh, semi-fascists and the, the racists in our country he doesn't have a clue about what he's talking about i love how he's railing against semi-fascism when he's standing with a red backdrop at a lectern <laughs> with two uniform military members behind him the optics of that are so insane no, it, can you imagine if trump did that that it would be it would be the end, right? It would be everyone would lose their minds. And this morning, it was I was heartened to see some people on the left saying like, "This is crazy. It's wrong to do that speech with that those optics." If you're Republican, if you're Democrat, and that's exactly right. You can't vilify half the population. How does that end? How does that end when you are unothering, dehumanizing half the population, taking away their individuality, 
uh, impugning their motives, um, questioning their love of country, and stating that somehow those people are the fascists. Uh, no, you're the fascist, Joe Biden. That's right. You are a fascist dictator who well, wants you're behaving, everyone to you're behaving as a fascist. Well, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure he's anything. I, don't, I think it's elder abuse every time they put him up there because I'm not sure he knows where he is. Or, and, and, but the, the modern Democrat Party would be unrecognizable to someone who was a fan of, say, JFK. Yeah. And they've gone so far down the road of demonizing half of the population instead of seeking to understand why there's a difference of opinion, how those people came to honestly form those opinions, and what can be learned. That's right. There is no desire to have conversations with the half of the population they are fully willing to throw under the bus anytime. And they are willing to weaponize every federal agency from the IRS, which now has 87,000 more goons working for it, to the FBI, to even the military, to go after the people that disagree with them. That is wild. That is wild, authoritarian, fascist stuff. And to then work hand-in-hand hand with private companies to squelch the First Amendment rights of people, to work with Facebook and Twitter to have those dialogues. You see those emails released by the redacted emails from the, I think it was Missouri Attorney General? They're wild. They're talking back and forth about you need to, you need to prevent this type of speech from getting out on your platform. The federal government cannot do that. They cannot use a private organization to squelch the First Amendment. Well, I think you're absolutely right about that. But I think I also think, in a in a larger sense, how and why in the world would you want to stifle the motivational speech of people who are passionately involved? When I wrote my book, Passion for Patience, that came out in 1997, I, uh, uh, 2017. I, I there you go, you're 80, <laughs> 83 year old. Uh, sorry, President Biden. But the, the idea that you'd want to stifle people who have passionate views, you want to encourage them to put their passionate views out there so that they can be examined. That's right. And, and, and if necessary, corrected. Well, th this, is, this is exactly why the Nazis needed to march in Skokie in the 60s, right? right. To, to put the stupidity of their views on full display so that everyone could look at that and be like, that's a set of really dumb ideas, right? It's sol the, the problem, the solution to speech you don't like is more speech. That's right. And inevitably, you will see the ridiculousness of the poor uh, Well, of the in poor a democracy, at least the representatives and the people themselves that are voting for the representatives in our democratic republic are going to see. And, and hopefully, this is what's going to happen here in November 8th. On November 8th. Well, I mean, we'll see when the entire uh, media industrial complex is working hand in glove with an increasingly authoritarian fascist Democratic Party that looks nothing like the Democratic Party of their forebears. Um, I have concerns. And if you layer on to that the ability to weaken well, can, any can type you, of voting. Can you, can you explain security? a little bit more about your concerns? Yeah. What, what, are you concerned that, that the Nazis are going to win? <laughs> I mean, every you know, it's funny. Like every every internet uh, trope ends like, oh, and always is you're Nazi and you're Nazi. But the idea that squelching discourse well, will lead to anything other than, than badness 
is, is crazy. Well, like, usually what most people do is they withdraw. At least yeah. when I was in karate class, that's the first thing the sensei would say. Yeah. See, if somebody comes after you, you run away. Right. You run away or get out, of away. The, get out of the way. Tactical retreat. Right. Tactical retreat. Yeah. yeah. No, that's the, the voters it, aren't going to show up. Yeah, well, especially if well, if you don't if you don't think your vote counts, again, that's that's reality versus perception, but if you don't think it counts, you don't think anything can be done, you're going to stay home and how much of this is just setting up the chessboard to say you know what, uh, we're going to come and find you, your vote really doesn't count, we're not going to do anything anyways, and we're going to have all institutional capture required to continue to try to stay in power and, and grind you down. And unfortunately, I, that my, when the rhetoric out of the White House is this poisonous, I don't know how you start to walk this back unless normal you people... You have to throw the bums out. You have to throw the bums out. And they have to become... and we. We started this by talking about Tulsi Gabbard, right? Yeah. You and I can have someone that we don't agree with, that we can at least respect. Well, I agree How with a lot could... of things about Tulsi Gabbard, but I'm, I'm a Republican by nature, and she is a Democrat. Yeah, but my nature. point is, how much of that goes but the other way? she's from Hawaii, and she's Polynesian, and she's got a different background than I do. And I understand a lot about Hawaiians and about Polynesia, because I lived out there for three years. But how much of that respect goes the other direction? You and I want to live. I think and let she would live. respect us. Correct, but she's all. But for that respect, she's ostracized because she's not willing to call us fascists. Unless she's on Tucker she's not Carlson, willing to call us who respects her too. Right, that's right. So you can respect people with whom you disagree. Exactly, uh, and that's how things worked in this country for a very long time. Or you can respect people that are of different parties than you. If you're in the union or you're not in the union, or if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, or you're a Catholic or a Protestant, or if you're a Hindu or a, a Sikh or a whatever you are, you can respect other points of view. Well, that viewpoint, I think, uh, seems to now only exist on the right. The live and let live mantra of, you don't need to all agree. I'd like to understand where you're coming from, but we can respectfully agree to disagree. And I think what you're calling for is a return to the kind of I would call it uh, studied type of uh, democratic thinking. Uh, maybe it was John Kennedy. Certainly, yeah, we could take Kennedy. But the idea of social contract, social responsibility, taking care of the poor, making sure that the, the society is organized around uh, recognizing that people have needs that aren't always met. And there is a very important uh, step that, that society needs to take. I, as a Republican, feel that Many of us believe that, and 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 I think President Trump uh, believed that too. I, I yeah. as far as I can tell, we were talking a little. I think maybe before we started rolling about Trump and an, an interesting character, right? I mean, I think oh, yeah. certainly not without without flaws. But could any so could any other person have done what he did? So are the flaws I was really surprised necessary? I mean, I think to the first time did. I saw him on TV and he had his red hat on and his big plane in the background and he was sitting out the airport and he was sort of make America great again. What in the world is this? <laughs> you know, what kind of a dude is this? It took me a while to sort of listen to, to, to understand that he was really trying to challenge what he perceived as a, as, a, as a bad course that the country was taking. Could any other person in that situation, that's the question I keep asking myself, was there any other person who had the set of skills, strengths, and weaknesses required to wake the country up to what was happening to it and just not care about what that blowback would be? I don't know of the answer to that, but I know that he was the man yeah. that did it. Uh, and uh, I voted for him uh, uh, both times. Uh, 
Do you think? Do you think they both counted? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think they did. I wish uh, Steve Simon were here to talk to us about that because I have a lot of respect for Steve. I think he's a very bright and and honorable person. But I also think that there was an awful lot of um, advantage that the Democrats uh, 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 established by setting up the early voting, the, the ballot boxes, the mm -hmm. whole bit. And now we've sort of, it's all sort of morphed into, hey, you don't even have to know, you don't even have to know who the voter is. Yeah, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter whether you're a citizen or not. If you vote, well, this, yeah, is that's wild. this is ridiculous. That is wild. Stuff. I mean, there's no, I mean, to just put it in perspective, we're an outlier in the, in the brotherhood of countries in that, a wild outlier in that we don't require an ID to vote. I know. I, Nearly I, every country in the world requires right. an ID to vote. Right. Second, the fact that you are even contemplating in some jurisdictions giving non-citizens right. the right to vote is pure insanity. There's right. no one in the world who even has that discussion because right. it doesn't make sense. It's not their country. Right. So American citizens vote, and each person is absolutely entitled to one and only one vote, and right. every one of those votes is precious, and right. it must be counted correctly. Right. And uh, we should vote on one day. And if you have extenuating circumstances that prevent you from getting there, absolutely, we like, should make like it so that you can vote. Like if you get to be vote. 83 and you don't, uh, you don't yeah, know how, then you can, right. yes, you can uh, apply for a absentee absolutely. ballot. Absolutely, and, and it should be, and it that should, should be, be easy to do, and I certainly agree with that. And it should be a shall issue, just like we have shall issue permits, it should be a shall issue absentee ballot, but you do have to ask. Yes. I'm not going to come over and assess how painful your foot is and why you can't walk and wait in line. If you just make the request, <laughs> and especially if you're tied right. to voter ID, fine. Well, when I voted in the primary, uh, my wife and I, uh, we were asked if we wanted to have the uh, absentee ballot sent, and, and we said yes, and we signed something mm -hmm. that said so, and, and proved our identity on the spot, and then that's fine, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, every time I walk in, I still can't get rid of the habit of, I just have my ID in my hand, and you know, and they're just like, we don't need that. I'm like, this is, this is crazy. You know, IDs, how, how is it that uh, apparently I can't get an ID because I have too much melanin in my skin? It's too complicated for me because I'm brown? I mean, that's the assertion they make. It's like, well, blacks can't get IDs. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure everyone has an ID because you can't exist without one. I have no problem making those IDs free. But let's make sure that you're has one person. Has anybody ever talked to a group of African-American people and asked them whether they have a problem with IDs? Yeah, well, we talk about this all the time. My barbershop, I just got my haircut yesterday. Really? Barbershop in Cedar Riverside. Same barbershop Keith Ellison gets his haircut at. All these guys hate Keith. They're like, he is a faker. He does not care about what's happening in this community. He does not care about the crime. There's a carjacking in the parking lot of that uh, barbershop two weeks ago. It was Somali, uh, Somali youth, Somali female in there. She comes running up to the barbershop window. All the guys empty out. Half those guys are carrying and uh, this kid runs away, so they call the cops. Cops, he gets onto a bus. Cops stop the bus, get the kid off, just take a picture for him of him. Once they find out he's 14, let him go. He punched a lady in the face, jacked her car, and then drove it into a light pole, and there's no consequence to that. So the people who live in these communities that are being afflicted by the out-of-control crime, uh, the lack of enforcement by the county attorneys and ineffectual mayors like you know Jacob Frey in Minneapolis um, those community members are waking up and for the first time ever I think are seeing that democratic policies lead to poverty 
they lead to crime, they lead to violence in their communities, and these unaccountable career politician leaders are the ones who are doing this. And so, yeah, we have great discussions about every single person that I was like, who here has an ID? Every single person there has an ID. Okay, but what, let's say for this 14-year-old, let's say that the police had apprehended him and maybe, maybe he'd have to go someplace and cool it. What are we going to do with him? Uh, granted, he, he's, he's committed a, an offense. He's broken the law. Maybe his family doesn't have enough money to bail him out or does. But then should he go to a residential uh, program for adolescents? Should he go to a school that's going to teach him how to read and write? I mean, how, how, what's the next step? Well, uh, even, for even less downstream than that is the fact that there was just no negative consequence. There oh, I agree didn't with even, that. He right? didn't even go to central booking, but, get his but fingerprints I, but, but taken. I think part of the no reason one even went and talked to his parents and said, hey, your son did this. It's right. bad. I, Tell I, him I, to agree, stop. I agree with all of that. But, uh, but some of that is it's not only because <clears throat> the police are directed to release and do as mm -hmm. Lori Lightfoot and others are doing. It's because what is the alternative? Yeah, so, you know... They, they have to go back home, but home is, is, is chaotic. So the f that question that I've asked, uh, the answer I've gotten is that life is hopeless for a lot of these kids. They were unceremoniously chucked out of school by the teachers' unions working hand-in-hand -hand with Walls and Malcolm. The people with the most tenuous grasp on not falling off because of a variety of social issues. School was maybe the one anchor that kept them there. They were chucked out. Yeah. They were just put back onto the streets. There was no Zoom. Zoom school is not school. Any social constructs no, that came isn't. with... Zoom school is... N is that, that's right. And Zoom school, I mean, I'm glad that you and I are having this conversation. We talked about doing this by Zoom. We could have, <laughs> but this is much better. It's there's, different. There's it's no, different. There's no... And the same in psychiatric practice. Having a one-on-one yeah. -on -one encounter with a family or with an individual is so much different than Zoom. So the most at-risk uh, kids were chucked out of the little stability they had. Right. Uh, they're taught that there's little value to them. They are That's looking right. at an environment where the yeah. mortality, of the, the, the odds of making it to 19 are terrible, are they much less the that odds or are of they taught that they, they see it. Are they, uh, yeah, they see so it. How many more funerals do you need? I know, but how about, is, whose fault is that? Well, is it the white man? Is it the society? Is it uh, their dad that isn't there? I mean, who's, whose fault is it in their mind? Well, it's an amalgam probably of multiple things, but the point, the step one is admit that there's a problem. Step one, admit that what is going on is not good and that all the democratic- Step one of AA, right? That's right, step one of AA, admit you have a problem. Admit that decades and decades and decades of Democrat plans for the cities have failed. Taking the black father out of the household, loose policing, not prosecuting people, um, keeping criminals in the communities with the rest of the folks who are just trying to work a job and have their kids go to school, allowing the teachers' unions to keep bad teachers in school and not holding those teachers accountable, but continuing to funnel money at failing public schools. And then all of those policies have created the environment that we're in now. It's not any single one. The, dr the war on drugs, which was an absolute failure. Um, we talked earlier in this about how drug use is not good, but two things can be true. The war on drugs was an absolute failure that put too many black men into prison. Yes. 
Um, there was differential enforcement of laws. I mean, the laws around yeah. crack versus cocaine, crack, crack, right? Crack and cocaine, right? Those damaged those communities. It damaged any semblance of trust we had. The inability to throw out bad cops, leave them in too long. The inability to throw out bad teachers because of their union contracts and leave them in those communities for too long. And to think that somehow doing more, this is the classic leftist progressive Democrat idea. Communism didn't work because we didn't do it hard enough. That's right. Our, policy, our social policies didn't work because we didn't shovel enough money at them. How many more trillions of dollars do you want to in invest in failed policies before you realize that your policies are what has killed these communities? And that if we want to open up economic prosperity, which I believe is the, the key to bringing stability and hope to communities that have very little order, law enforcement, business. Well, let's, let's advise... Uh uh, Governor Jensen. Future Governor Jensen. Yes. Okay. Let's set up a, a, <laughs> a world that, or, or an opportunity. I'm sure that he's with us and perhaps ahead of us in many ways. Maybe not you, but me, because I have a great deal of respect for your courage in taking on the political establishment and engaging yourself and doing these, doing this uh, Save Soda uh, series that you're doing. That's wonderful. But if if uh, if uh, Dr. Jensen would, would succeed in being elected governor of Minnesota and had some say in how he'd set up his administration. What would you advise him to do? Select people from the communities that you want to help that aren't simply friends of donors, that aren't part of the political class. Really, truly look. Ask the black pastors in North Minneapolis yes. who've been trying to fight this, yes. who's the most qualified person to hold this position? Right. What policies? And it could be Don Samuels and Sandra, and it could be others. And I don't know. I'm not a subject matter expert, but I can point I, you in the direction well, I mean, of folks who are. I've had a little are. experience with that through my granddaughter uh, going to De LaSalle and having Sandra as the speaker at, at, uh, at one of their main events and graduations, and, and actually the, the primary with Omar with uh, Don Samuels, mm -hmm. I mean some of his ideas. I mean, here's a substantive. These are substantive people who really care about that community. Right, right. You so want those people. Go you ahead. want those people, but the solution is to uh, not continue to do what we've been doing. And you know, I even fault there's Republicans who continue to shovel more and more money at a failing public education system and asking nothing in return. Why would I give an employee a raise? if they continued to provide poorer and poorer customer service quarter after quarter. The deliverable in education, graduation rates, test scores, now the Department of Education and the Teachers Union wants to get rid of those. Test scores are racist. No, test scores are a great way of measuring not only big G, but a great way of measuring the teacher's ability to influence those students and get them to learn and live up to their genetic potential. And so if you take and that it's away... it's a great thing for the students to know that they've done well on a test. It is, absolutely. And they're looking for a job or an opportunity someplace. That's right. So we, why would we continue to shovel additional money year after year at these teachers' unions that were willing to keep kids at home for no reason, that were willing to substitute Zoom school in for real school, that are willing to put the needs of the students second, well, third, or fourth behind their paycheck? It's called oligopoly monopsony again. Well, yes. That's why we do. I mean, uh, th th that's how our political arrangements are So are in schools, made. it's easy. The education, the, the, the way to get rid of a monopoly is to increase the number of market entrants. Put the dollars behind every kid. If your school's failing, you can go down the street. You can go to a private school. Why should you suffer in a failing school that's going to kowtow to the unions instead of the students?
And I think that the answer to help the unions uh, to get rid of, perhaps get rid of the Randy Weingartens and people like that, is to is to have support for charter schools and publicly funded alternatives to. But the unions schools. don't want that. They don't want to compete with having that. No monopolist voluntarily gives up their monopoly power. No, it has to be right. wrested from their hands. Right. And, and so I hope that the that's, legislature. That's what's going on with Biden and all of this. Right. Fascism talk too. Yeah. yeah. So I hope that I hope Governor Jensen, I hope the Senate and the House can get school choice, can get charter school funding, can right. hold the teachers unions accountable. That's what's going to help these communities. How do you, how do you hold the teachers unions accountable? I mean, it's their union. The teachers are, I guess, they you, don't have to belong, do they? Uh, they don't have to, but they make your life miserable for the few oh, teachers. I know about that uh, from family <laughs> members that are involved. The way you hold them accountable is by actually giving them a, a legitimate funding threat. If you legitimately threaten their funding, they will behave. You will see instantly the wokeness go out of the schools, the, the sexualization of our children, the, um, the war on merit. All of that will end if their funding is actually at risk because what they care about more than anything else is making more money every year. And if you can put that at risk right. and say that parents are going to hold you accountable by taking away the funding, taking away those FTEs and going to a charter school, going to a private school, going to homeschool, and they'll have the means to do that, and they don't have to be independently wealthy to do so, um, they'll change their tune, but not until you squeeze them. So. That's my hope of what the legislature can do. That's a big lift, but we can really lead. And that will do more for those yeah. at-risk communities than any other single intervention. I'd like to jump into something since we're on to telling or advising our colleague, Dr. Jensen, if, if he succeeds in the election, about health care. And I realize that that's not a uh, priority issue, and he's identified that as such correctly, I think, with crime and... and uh, lots of other things that are in COVID and things like that that have been more dominant. But if we were going to change some of these things that we've already discussed, and I know I don't want, I don't want to lead this discussion, I want you to lead me, but this is something that I'm passionate about. I'd like to see what we could actually do to improve the opportunity for patients and families to have more power mm -hmm. in the healthcare system. Well, step one, you know, um Representative Munson's bill on price transparency was a step, but simply knowing what things cost. And by the way, many of the larger institutions have not adequately provided that That's data right. because I there were no that. teeth in that bill. That's right. um, it's a part of it. But you need to have the ability. The entire healthcare marketplace is not set up uh, to keep people healthy. It's to create revenue when they fall ill. That's right. And uh, I tell patients all the time, wear yeah, a hat, or wear or sunscreen. Or revenue when they show up. Th that's right. Um, you know, I tell patients all the time, you know, wear a hat and sunscreen so I don't have to cut on your face. <laughs> 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 um, because I care about their well-being. Yeah. And, and there'll be a plenty of things for me to do to, to, yeah. to feed my family. But we don't have a health care system. No. We have a sick care system yeah. that pays far too much to a cartel of large organizations. That's right. Um, and doesn't care about the individual patients. I mean, how much funding goes to pharma? How many ads when you turn on your TV oh. and watch a football game? What fraction of them are <laughs> Pfizer? And these are these uh, large right. pharma corporations are some of the most disgusting people ever. I mean, the Vioxx scandal 
what happened with OxyContin. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the greatest scandals. They've cost hundreds of thousands of lives. And yet, uh, the Biden administration is feeling willing to swallow whatever lie well, Albert Borla and Pfizer tells more, them about the we vaccines. We need more government. We need to negotiate with Medicare. We need to lower the prices of all these things. We need to make all these vaccinations and all this stuff available to everyone. And the government's going to pick up the tab. Now, do you think anything is going to happen when the lobbyists on Capitol Hill are funded no, by Big Pharma? No, I, 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 I don't. I, I think you're absolutely right about the power of those pharma lobbyists. I, I knew that when I was uh, involved with the EPA as on the National Legislative Committee. It's so much money. I mean, the, the amount of money is almost hard hard to fathom. They're outspending every other industry in terms of buying those ads. They have hoodwinked uh, Trump's administration and the Biden administration into believing these vaccines have all but the narrowest therapeutic benefit. And they are fully willing to squelch the data when there was a benefit to monoclonal antibodies. And they will certainly not tell you or want to study any of the drugs that cost $10 for a handful of pills. Now, the one good thing the University of Minnesota has done is, I believe, since the beginning, they've led in actually studying. They had a healthcare worker prophylaxis hydroquinone study, no benefit, but they did it and they published it. They recently, just in New England, had a multi-arm study, incredibly well done study design, that asked uh, about early treatment with higher dose ivermectin, fluvoxamine, metformin, and placebo. Placebo-controlled, multi-armed, very good, rigorous study design. That sounds like a good study. It's a great study. It's a great, well, it was a good enough study to get published in New England. Mm -hmm. The University of Minnesota has tried to ask those. There is no financial benefit to oh. any one of those drugs. Metformin costs pennies a pill. Right. Um, metformin has substantial improvement, 40 to 50% reduction in hard endpoints, like mortality and hospitalization. That's better than any of the other drugs, like molnupiravir, that are approved. And it works on Omicron, which the vaccines no longer do. But what kind of fanfare is that drug getting? Metformin, which a significant fraction of the population, for other reasons, would benefit from on a metabolic basis. You know, good on the U of M for doing that study. And David Boulevard has worked very hard in his infectious disease doc at trying to get the FDA to add an indication for fluvoxamine. So the fluvoxamine arm of the U study showed no benefit, but there's too many other RCTs that show a benefit. So it's one of these where if you do the meta, I think this, the, there's still a net benefit. Anyways, it's a $10 old, you know, I think it was a tricyclic or one of these older antidepressants. It a, yeah, no, it's, or, it's a SSRI. SSRI. <clears throat> Beneficial drug, very cheap. So interestingly, he has tried to get the FDA to add it as an approved indication on the drug with the data that exists, which, by the way, is more robust than any of the data for molnupiravir or the protease inhibitors, right? So, um, and the FDA, because it has an alternative pathway to add an indication to an old drug, has repeatedly refused to grant it. So what if, uh, if Governor Jensen came to you and said, Dr. Shaw, would you like to be my commissioner of health? <laughs> I work for a living. I, I have a hard time <laughs> saying yes. I'm too busy oh, fixing people. Well, um, but, yeah, but I, I mean, I'd be flattered by that. You know, I think Scott is great. Obviously, having someone with some facility in science in that area, I think what we should look for in someone that wants to be involved with public health is a true commitment to improving those things like looking at how do we drive down drug use, which is a significant contributor to homelessness. How do we... Uh, continue to hold the gains we've made against combustible tobacco by being honest with the data on nicotine. How do we, the, the elephant in the room is obesity. 
Yes. That's the number right. one cause of liver transplant is going to be NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, secondary to obesity. And I see kids who are morbidly obese, and it is somehow acceptable to not tell them that your child is dying of a condition that can be treated with dietary intervention alone. We have some of the greatest food producing companies. We have one of the largest agricultural bases in the country. Right. This state can solve the obesity problem with ag and with science okay. and by working together. Right. But we can't solve the problem if we no longer think that obesity is an issue. Yeah. And the downstream effects of liver failure, you'll see fatty streaking on autopsies of kids who die in their teenage years really? from accidental causes. Fatty streaking, which is the antecedent to large vessel disease, which is the antecedent to strokes, heart attacks well, in and, their 40s and, and 50s. And the mortality data on COVID, too, suggests that obesity is a big problem. It And why didn't, the, before we had any therapeutics in, in May of 2020, we knew that people who had obesity were dying at incredible rates from COVID. Yeah. The public health authority could have come out and said, you know what costs zero dollars? Stop eating carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Cut down on your sugar intake. Get out there and walk. Work out because this exactly. can save your life from That's COVID. Right. Not a mask. No. And better data than even the vaccines. Yes. When they did work for the two months. But the public health system just, I don't know, I don't know what the issue is. This acceptance culture of we can't say that being fat is unhealthy, it is absolutely unhealthy. Childhood obesity is one of the, the single biggest public health crises that we face along with the substance abuse, fentanyl deaths and overdoses. And if public health wanted to regain any modicum of respect, which I believe it lost all of during the COVID crisis and due to its gross mismanagement, they would double down on solving the opioid epidemic, and they would double down on addressing obesity, but particularly childhood obesity. Yes. So that's what Scott should select in their next uh, commissioner, and they should go hard on those things. So we as a state, with Cargill, with General Mills, with 3M, with the agricultural base we have, we can solve it, and we don't need anyone's help to do it. Do you think there's any, any room in the healthcare reform area for changing, uh, changing this oligopoly, oligopsony situation so that clients, patients, consumers have more play in the system? I mean, you, you talked about the partial success of the price transparency, but just a first step. And that it doesn't do any good if you really can't choose. Yeah, so I failed to pick up that thread. So you're right. So the first step is knowing what the milk costs at the store, which we now, That's in theory, right. do. What is insurance? Insurance is someone else with deeper pockets financially backstopping a rare eventuality that you cannot afford to self-insure. I don't self-insure oil changes in my car right. because I can afford to pay for oil changes. Right. I can afford to pay for tires and brakes and shocks and struts. I insure against total loss due to accident or total loss due to theft. That is the purpose of insurance. I don't insure my furnace at home. I save up money and self-insure. But if my house burns down, I'm going to need a hand. Insurance in healthcare has turned into a maintenance contract instead of what truly insurance ought to be. I would like to see a world where State Farm and West Bend and Allstate offer indemnity plans mm -hmm. that say under X dollars, and that's going to vary family to family, right? Some mm -hmm. families may need assistance even getting to that first step of $1,000 or 5000 But why isn't there a gradation where I can pick what I can self-insure, and I pay every dollar up until that point, 
and then someone steps in when it gets catastrophic and I get cancer or a stroke or a heart mm -hmm. attack, and it doesn't matter where I go. If my roof gets hail damaged, it doesn't matter who fixes it. The insurance company will write a check within reasonable margins. I'm, uh, you may be aware, I think you probably are, because I'm on the Republican Health Care Task Force uh, with uh, John Tyler and Jennifer Sherman, who are insurance agents, mm -hmm. really. And Glenn Gruenhagen, representative, has, has done a lot of work on this. But they are really trying to do exactly what you're laying out here. That is to allow people to self-insure and allow employers to allow their employees to mm -hmm. self-insure. Uh, and that would be, I would think that would be a real boon for, um, for employers and employees to offer, you know, if you decide to leave my business, you can still take your insurance along with you. Well, it wouldn't be a boon for Mayo or for the U or for Pharma. <laughs> but who cares? But, but then at It'd some great point, for the, the, the other part of what, what uh, uh, John Tyler and others have come up with is the idea of, sort of reinstituting the successful Minnesota Comprehensive Health Association idea that at some point, for some people, you got to have that catastrophic safety net so that people don't go bankrupt, so that we don't have this, medi uh, this medical debt issue that the Democrats are always saying the reason why we have to have a single-payer mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. But John and, 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 and others have really done an excellent job with bills that are sitting on somebody's in somebody's closet someplace, not Miro Largo, that, that, are, uh, that could be activated if we yeah. have a Republican legislature. I think people don't realize how much th they are paying for health care. So if you make $50,000 a year, you make $25 an hour, and your employer offers a health plan, it's probably not that great. So let's just say it's a silver plan, because I know the numbers pretty well. They're playing the better part of 15 to, eight, 15 to 20 versus if it's individual, family, whatever. Let's just say that it's 10. Let's just make it a low number. They're paying $10,000 a year in premiums for you. You have a $4,000 deductible. So on the first 4K, you're completely on the hook for it. In many years, you're not even going to use that 4K. So you're self-insured other than for catastrophe or even deliveries or joint replacements, things like that. Um, as an employer, I would rather write you a check for that 10 grand and let you decide how you want to spend that money than giving it to Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or P1, mm -hmm. or Health Partners. Right. And then you can get your credit card out, pick a physician who's going to work for you, right. not for a big system, right. and pay them for right. their time. Yes. Patients are frustrated with a 10-minute visit. Do you know why it's 10 minutes? Because of this bizarre third-party payment system, and I that's know. the only way to keep it going. I, you right. want an hour of their that's time? That's happened in psychiatry, which to me just destroys the whole enterprise. That's right. Do you want an hour of their time? Pay for an hour of their time. If I want an hour of my plumber's time, I'm going to pay for an hour of my plumber's time. And uh, I get them for that hour. Well, as long as we're on to fixing Blue Cross Blue Shield and the, and the big uh, health, uh, health payers, what about these provider networks? Maybe somehow that whole concept needs to be revisited. Well, you get rid of networks by going to self-pay plus indemnity That's because right. there's no such thing as a network. That's right. You know, the, the networks are contracted. But with the monopsony uh, or and the oligopoly, the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield and Health Partners people and all the rest are going to fight that like uh, oh, crazy in the legislature. That's right. So networks are uh, created to select certain people for preferential coverage with a health care plan. Okay. Uh, an easy way to reduce your expenses or costs would be to reduce the number of people who can <laughs> bill you. And so uh, if you refuse to let new practices come into your monopoly, 
which is what happens in southern Minnesota due to Mayo and Blue yes, Cross. Yes. If someone wants to start a new hospital, they have to in Albert Lee, they need to ask Mayo for permission to start a new hospital. Do you think Burger King should ask McDonald's for permission to set up a new burger stand across the street from them? That's ridiculous. But that is healthcare in modern America. And there's any number of other unconstitutional anti-competitive, anti-free market concepts like certificates of need. Yes, I need to go that's ask where I was going to. I <laughs> need to ask my competitors for permission to open a hospital. Right, right. Uh, that's bonkers. Yeah, we wouldn't really tolerate is. that no. in any other market. I need to ask my competitors for permission to compete with them. Who, who's going to say yes? No, no one's going to say yes. And that's the reality is that's why healthcare is so expensive, particularly in southern Minnesota. Uh, if you have to ask Mayo for permission, they are not going to tell you yes. And healthcare costs are continuing to be whatever Mayo decides they ought to be. And every business that's there is going to be at a competitive disadvantage. If you're Red Wing Shoes, you have no choice but to provide healthcare coverage, not only for your active employees, but for your pensioners. And those healthcare costs blow a hole in budgets because there is no competing entity that's willing to say, you know what, I will. Uh, replace those joints for less money. Now, there are some folks who are doing innovative things because uh, the tribes are self-insured, and they'll oftentimes backstop their self-insurance with a big policy. Like, so if we get to 2 or $3 million, now you step in and pay. But since they're cash payers, you know, the folks that are down at Treasure Island will say, you know what, we're going to bust you up for your knee replacement. We're going to send you to Twin Cities Orthopedics because they do amazing work, as good or better than Mayo. They're going to do it at half the cost. We'll put you up in a hotel up there. We'll get you post-op care. We'll get you to come back down here. And we just save money. All of the innovations that happen happen in a market where you can see what things cost, and then you can shop for the best use of your dollars. That's right. We can barely see what things cost now, and you sure as hell can't shop with your dollars. That's, the, uh, that's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah. You can't shop with your dollars because some of my colleagues are talking about you know, expanding HSAs and 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 uh, other types of accounts, and maybe even creating new ones, so that we could have have the equivalent of a Roth IRA, let's say, for sure. a family and things like that that could be used for healthcare. But but it's it, if you if nobody's going to take your your money, or your cash. I mm -hmm. mean, if you go to most clinics in, in Minneapolis at least, and you say, how much does it cost to see a psychiatrist? Mm -hmm. They won't. E they'll look at you like you have a hole in your head. <laughs> they'll s uh, first of all, they they, w they don't know what it would cost, yep. and secondly, they don't know if you could see a psychiatrist, and third, they couldn't arrange even if they if yeah. even if they knew the other two. And your average doctor that works for a big system has no idea when they're like, "I'm going to order a panel of tests to even answer the question, what are these going to cost?" Right. We have a discussion with every patient that, right, right. hey. Here's the probability I think that it's this, this, or this. Yes. I can look at your deductible right now. I know you're going to be paying the bill for this. Right. I think it's worthwhile as a professional. I'd recommend that we do it. Right. You're probably going to be on the hook for $1,500, $1,800, depending on contracted rates. And patients love that. They really appreciate it. They're like, well, what's the alternative if I can't afford that? I say, okay, well, how about we see you back in another six months. It's a $100 office visit. And if it's changed, then we do it. And they're like, I'll do that instead. Yes. They make rational choices when given information. Right, but you're giving them information about cost yes. up front. And they can decide on the benefit That's because right. I can't decide exactly. on the benefit. Exactly. It's their body. That's right. Their healthcare decision. They're the decision makers who will decide the benefit. 
but I have a moral obligation to let them know what it's going to cost them so they can do the calculation to decide what the benefit is. And I can try to sketch out the universe if they do it, the universe if they don't do it, and then abide by their decision. Um, you know, I, I think that's the way healthcare ought to be delivered. And if there's one good thing that's come out of COVID, it's that more people are now asking, is the doctor working for me or is the doctor working for somebody else? And they're- Can you elaborate on that a little so bit So people have broken away. So the physicians who said, I'm not willing to go back on the Hippocratic Oath to make my employer happy, some of those people have left. And they've hung their shingle bravely and they are starting to put the needs of the patient first. And they don't accept insurance, but they're not that expensive. And patients are starting to say, I want a doctor who works for me, not who works for some big system, mm -hmm. and they will find these people. Direct primary care will save primary care. And I think direct payment for a variety of outpatient services. If I need a colonoscopy, there's someone who will do it in town with sedation, with biopsies for 2,100 bucks. That's a great deal. But if you get stuck at some big system, they won't even tell you what it costs, and it's going to be five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000. And if you have a big deductible, you're on the hook for every one of those pennies. So slowly, people need to be made aware of what you know, the scams are in medicine and how we got here and how a lack of a free market drives up costs and how that is detrimental to business growth and how that's detrimental to personal savings and even detrimental to people's health. Because I think sometimes people had access to potentially life-saving medications like fluvoxamine uh, or metformin when they got COVID because the only thing that the drone at the hospital system was going to offer was remdesivir. How many more lives could we have saved with early intervention and treatment on an outpatient basis? We'll never know. No. But pharma would have made a lot less money if we would have gone. So do that. we have any other advice for uh, our new governor? No. I think that, um, <laughs> you know, I think just, you know, get elected. That's the biggest thing. And yeah. as we kind of wrap up here, I think it's getting people to think about how we got to where we are and what the solutions yes. look like going forward. So, um, you know, I hope Scott does that. But I, you know, I'm really excited about some of the folks that are going into the House and Senate. A couple of great folks that I've talked to on this podcast um, already. I think, you know, one of those guys is a shoe in for sure. Hopefully the other two win. I think we can expect great things in Minnesota um, in January. And just getting people to have conversations with their neighbors and not vilify them like Joe Biden wants us to do. I have one final question yeah. for you, which I wanted to have. Uh, because I am on this Republican health care task force and because I am interested in working with Dave Racer on what the Republican Party in Minnesota is offering vis-a-vis -vis some of these policy recommendations and incentivizing votes uh, for, for Republican candidates. What, what, what about the, uh, re, uh, the GOP here in terms of health care policy? Do you think they're I mean, the GOP should get saying? back to the roots of being a small government free market party. If there's the opportunity to extract the state from any set of decision making, to reduce regulatory burdens, to get rid of anti-market things like certificates of need, to yes. drive innovation, to drive on entrepreneurial spirit, the GOP should do that. And uh, giving people, legislators, the courage to ignore what the lobby is going to tell them, ignore the hospital association and the unions. So how can they afford to do that? Well, they need to find some courage. And the 
individuals who want that, the citizens of this state, need to reward courageous legislators by being volunteers for them, giving them money, and helping them get, get and stay elected. Will they know who they are? Will they know which We've talked to a few folks so far, okay. and I hope to continue so to have more maybe, on. Maybe with uh, Safe Soda, you'll be able to we'll help educate to some of these voters. Yeah. Thank you so much again for making time. I mean, it was like two and a half hours. It was phenomenal. We covered a ton of subjects, and I really appreciate you being here, Lee. Well, it's been my my honor, my respect. I have so much respect for you and what you're doing, and I hope it succeeds. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.